Okay, um, this is an interview with Roz Wyman. It is February 25th, 2019. This interview is being conducted for the Women, Politics, and Activism Project. We are at her home in Los Angeles, California. The interview is being conducted by Natalie Fusakis. Good morning. Good morning. Um, let's start with when you were born. Well, I was born October 4th, 1930. My folks always said I brought the Depression. <laughs> uh, where were you born? Los Angeles, California. Um, can you talk a little bit about your childhood and family life growing up in Los Angeles? I sure can. I had wonderful parents. Just you couldn't ask for better parents than I had. My mother was the strongest in the family, though, by far. And um, uh, they were both, my mother became a druggist. Uh, my father was a druggist. We had uh, stores, uh, 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 mom and pop drug stores in Ninth and Western in Los Angeles. And we had uh, 30 stools, uh, 30, we old fashioned drug store with a counter and there was 30 stools at the counter. And my mother, because you obviously had to have a registered pharmacist to open the store, so after I was born, she went to uh, school at uh, USC and became a pharmacist so my father could have relief so he could go home or rest or whatever so they would take turns sometimes. But um, the drugstore was a huge part of my life. Uh, I ran the soda fountain when I was just high enough to reach, <laughs> high enough to do it. And a lot of people used to like to come in. Uh, the last store was at uh, Laurel Canyon and Sunset. And we had a lot of celebrities and uh, they would like to come in when I was behind the soda fountain because they figured it would be like I was eating it and they got an extra scoop in the ice cream <laughs> or they got extra sauce or whatever it was. But our Ninth and Western store was when I was obviously a very small child. And my mother and dad were very into politics. We sat at our dinner table and we saw every uh, fireside chat that Roosevelt did. And as a child, I wrote to Roosevelt as you would write to an uncle. And in fact, the last time they ran for office, uh, Steve Early was his secretary and they knew my letters. And they always took a picture of me and showed me uh, last time FDR ran, remember four terms, we don't do that anymore. And they I had a picture and it showed my baby picture looking at a Roosevelt and Garner's uh, uh, billboard, small in those days. And my age at 14, the last time he ran, I believe if I'm right. And um, we sent that picture, and Steve Early said, that's what they're using against us, that you <laughs> kids in America only know FDR, and that was part of the campaign. But my mother was determined that we would have the drugstore be part of the campaign, not sharing that with my father. <laughs> and what happened was, one night, uh, Dad went home to, I, obviously the story is told to me, Dad went home to rest, and my mother had made signs for inside the drugstore. They had a staircase, and the top of the staircase was the, where they put a lot of supplies. And my mother decided that once she would have 
um, fundraisers at when the drugstore closed. And she would have serve refreshments, and believe it or not, with what's raised today at fund, 50 cents was what she would get, a cost was your refreshments. And she would get the pie companies and the cake companies, all the people who came and were suppliers to get her free stuff. So it was a net-net thing. But what she did when Dad was home, she had the sign put up across the drugstore at top of the stairs. And my father came in and he said, oh, what did you do? She said, we'll lose all our customers. You can't put politics inside the store. It's bad enough if you wanted to sign outside the store, <laughs> but inside. So it was a very big cost to live. And my mother said, Oscar, we're going to keep it up. And guess who won? My mom. And out of that little drugstore, that little area, they elected the first Democrat in that congressional district, and his name was Johnny Costello. And my mother was so pleased that she had won the battle with my dad in the sign. But you know, in 1930, uh, or the last time Roosevelt ran, in the 30s, uh, you had a situation that if you were a Democrat in those days, today they're calling the socialist is the big word, but you were a communist then. And so my father really had a right to be concerned, but they seemed to have kept their business. And it was a very successful race in the night, obviously, that Johnny Costell won. The soda fountain was open to everybody, and everybody came in like you would on election night. So a lot of my politics started at my dinner table. We always discussed, uh, especially after the fireside chat, when I was old enough to discuss it, with them, although I remember as young as I can remember hearing FDR at the uh, fireside chats, and I don't know why more presidents don't have do this. I mean, the American public used to just love it, yeah. and you knew it was coming, and they looked forward to it, and you felt like FDR was like your father. He took care of you. Um, why do you think your parents were Democrats? Well, my father was born in Russia, and he came as an immigrant, and in fact, uh, the story goes as well that when he ran away from Russia, he went under a fence, and they were shooting at him, and he got onto a boat. They stowed away, he and a buddy, and they didn't even know where this boat was going, and they figured if they didn't find him, they were out to sea, they probably wouldn't throw him over, and so he landed in South America, and um, he... They didn't. He had a rel, one relative cousin in New York, and he had to get to New York. He knew, and he thought everybody in America was rich, and if his uh, cousin was saying come to America, you know, it would be great. My mother was born in Chicago, and so therefore, <clears throat> my my her brothers became active a little bit in politics as well in Chicago, so therefore. Um, my mother had the background of her brothers, and my dad was a immigrant, basically, and he, he finally got on another boat and got to New York. 
and he was, uh, he, they, when he got there, they had no room for him, of course. They were in just a walk-up apartment. <laughs> they were right. very poor. And so this rich relative that he was going to stay with, he, he didn't, he couldn't. So they arranged in the drugstore for a cot, and he would sleep there, and then he'd go to the great Y, the great uh, New York Y that's famous, uh, What's it called? 96. Is it okay to stop and start again? Yeah, yeah. 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 He okay. went to the... Stop it. Well, I'm going to say that he he would shower. Okay. All right. Just, I, on. Okay, one, two, three. He would uh, take his rest and sleep at night in the back of this drugstore and he would shower at the great 99th Street Y, which is still running, by the way, today. And uh, so therefore he went to college or met, uh, pharmacy school and became a druggist. And then he <laughs> went west, and that's when he met my mother. And my mother was just incredible. She didn't have more than a high school education. And she read about a job that she could work in the labor uh, in the men's clothing industry in Chicago, and she bluffed her way in to get this job, and she got it. She sat across the tra table with thirteen other men, and they were in the industry, and they were organizing at that point. Labor was organizing the industry, and she sat across the great famous guy in the Roosevelt uh, uh, circle. Sidney Hillman was his name, he's very famous. Mm -hmm. And she was management in this case. And so she would hear like the union was gonna have a, a, a event or a dance or something, and she would then have a party the night before. And so they were very glad when she decided to leave to go to California to the table that she sat with, let's get rid of her. <laughs> And so then she met my dad, and therefore the background of mother's activities in the industry where labor was being organized and she was in the clothing industry, and she came out here and met my dad. And his background as an immigrant, he was so grateful to be in America. And he talked about it all the time, and if anybody kind of that that's when he kind of projected if anybody would say something bad about America he would pop up he says you don't know what bad is and so therefore their background made them very both very interested in politics and therefore it seeped into me and I went when I went to school I got elected to things in grade school and high school and you know, ran for stuff right then and there. So came off from my family, and as I say, my mother really was acting. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Um, so when you were in high school at Los Angeles High, did you, you were, in, were you involved in student government then? Or? I was. <clears throat> it was kind of funny. Um, in junior high school, uh, the biggest thing in my junior high school was we sold bonds during the war. And I was, of course, bond chairman for whatever the kids' side of it was. But we had a very famous school orchestra. And the teacher 
uh, was a very active woman, and she had run a very, very big school orchestra. It became the most important thing, like, and, you know, we entered contests, etc. She didn't have a French horn, and so she met my mother, and my mother, she said, you know, we really need a French horn, and if you will buy us one, I'll teach Ross to play. And I always says that was the beginning of my career because I all that hot air that you blow in a horn, I learned the French horn. And I had <laughs> one night we had a big solo. I was going to have a solo, and my mother was. I said, "Mother, it's very small, and it could be changed, etc." She brought the whole family, and my solo was da 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 three times, and so. When I went to high school, the theory was I would go to the orchestra. Well, I probably had had the orchestra at that point. So in high school, I became very active in school politics. I ran for something called the House of Representatives, and I was elected because it, I could run for various things, but well, girls had never won in the school. And I figured, let's try for something I could win. And I went on a platform. It always bothered me, and it still does to this day, that I would see kids on the on the lunch time eating alone, and I always upset me. And when I ran for the House of Representatives, that was one of my issues, was that I would do a mixer at lunch so that everybody came together. We would have a mixer at school. And I had a vice principal who was in charge of that, who wasn't excited about my ideas after I got elected. And I used to have to go to her, but I had great friends in the faculty. And I usually can get around her. And then it was a school in Hancock Park, which was very upscale. And they had like sororities at LA High at that time. And that bothered me a lot. I was asked to join, but that wasn't for me. And so I decided as president of the House of Representatives that I would, they had beautiful dances. You went to country clubs and all that. And so I had to fight with the vice principal to say, let us do dances at school. You know, I didn't have to rent anything. I could get a combo. I could do stuff and we could decorate the gym, you know, to make it as nice as I could get it. And therefore, we didn't have to charge, I think, like a dollar or something for refreshments, you know, to cover some of it. But I had to go to the vice principal, and she didn't like that idea. She didn't like my mixer, she didn't like that. But she said, okay, Wyman, she used to call me by my last name, Wyman. No, I'm sorry, it was Weiner at that time, before I was married, obviously, in high school. Anyway, she she said, you have to have six chaperones, and they have to be teachers. And it's weekends, and, I, and she's sure that I couldn't get it. Well, I spent a couple of days talking to my pals, and therefore I got six. I came in, and I said, Miss Mathis, I have six uh, people, teachers, who are willing to come, and you wanted six? I've got six. And she said, okay. And so we then started the dances at school, and they got to be so popular that the ones who were going to the country clubs wanted to come to our dances as well. 
And so I felt that I uh, had achieved something in high school. One, I really was upset about the kids eating alone. I got a mixer. We had a disc jockey, and we'd have contests, and we'd get the merchants around to give us some stuff, and we would give little awards off. I mean, we we ran a really good mixer (laughs) at at lunch, and... uh, so I guess I can't remember even back to what your question was, but it was that about was, politics in high school. school. So, yeah. so that's uh, my answer about how it started. And I made a speech in high school for I had a public speaking public speaking class. Great teacher, and I made a speech on the great Helen Gahagan Douglas. And I never thought I'd ever meet her, but I had a speech and I won an award for that Douglas speech only in the, in my own classroom. But that was my introduction, my first introduction to Helen Douglas. Um, and my first campaign, really. Was Helen Helen? That was statewide, although yeah. the first time I voted, I voted for myself. And, uh, that's I a was, great, that's, a, that's the best per- way to vote, I guess. <laughs> well, I started with something called the county committee, which nobody had ever heard of in their lives. And to run, to be, you had to vote for seven people, as I recall, six or seven people on your ballot for every district, and they therefore served on the Democratic County Committee. Well, you're trying to get people to vote for things that people don't know what they're half of anything about who they're voting for anyway, and I'm trying to get them to vote for the county committee, and that's the first time I did some kind of uh, work talking to friends and doing some walking. My first walking was for that. So the first time I voted on the ballot at 21, I guess we voted then, we changed that. It's the Young Democrat to 18. I was a part of that. But uh, so I voted for myself. That's amazing. Um, so before we get too far ahead, uh, why did you choose uh, USC for for college? It was not my first choice at all. <laughs> and in fact, I really didn't think I would ever go to SC because it was a rich person's school, and I one didn't think we could afford it, and secondly, it just wasn't. Uh, what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to Stanford, and I just dreamed of going to Stanford. And uh, I only made an application, which was pretty stupid, to one school. It was Stanford. That was the second year women were granted a right to come to Stanford. And they had a rule that the women had to be on campus, and they almost had one dormitory. In those days, nobody mixed with each other. Women were women, men and men. And you had to make, a woman had to make a better score to go to Stanford than a man. And freshman, because you had to live at school. Also, I was of the Jewish faith, and Stanford was not very happy or, or didn't have a great record about allowing members of the Jewish faith to come to Stanford. But I, I filed anyway, and I got a summer school only. And um, I had to make a decision. I have no college if I don't do, do that. And I said, well, could I, if I went to summer school, could I get, get in the fall? And they said, no, you had to wait a semester. 
I wasn't waiting. I just didn't have time to wait. So I took myself down to SC. Now everything's closed. There is no, can't get in. So I went every single day and I said, there's gotta be dropouts. People have changed their minds. And the people in the office, the registrar office and the, I guess it was the Dean of Admissions was her, she was a woman. And um, I said, you gotta let me in, I gotta go to school. And I came every single day for about two weeks. And finally the story was, she just got sick and tired of me. She says, <laughs> take her. And so she took me into SC and that's how I got at SC. And then I almost got kicked out of SC. That's another story. <laughs> um, so when you got to USC, why did you decide to major in public administration? Well, uh, I was either political science or public administration, and everybody said, do you want to teach? You know, what are you going to do with political science? You know, not much of a future, but I thought I would go to law school, so I thought it almost didn't major, matter what I major, majored in. So I, talked, I decided that public administration was very political, even though not called political science. And public administration was all the how, how the how the cities run, how the state is run, how the a various thing. And one of the classes, boy, I had to take was statistics, and I was terrible. But I figured um, anyway. I got very friendly with the, the professor, and he felt sorry for me. And I made a deal with him, and in my finals, that he would give me the grade that I could get at the end. And so I did pass statistics, but after getting elected to the city council, first time I ever used my statistics, I was so smart to my <laughs> colleagues. I didn't understand anything at SC, but I could see it applying to especially our salaries at, S at uh, city council. So it turned out to be a very good major, and I just picked it. I, I was didn't want to be a public uh, administrator of any sort, but it seemed to be a lot more practical in political science, and that's why I was not a poli-sci major, but I had a lot of poli-sci courses, and I think the first one I took, I did terrible. I got a D, and I thought, oh my goodness, maybe this isn't for me, <laughs> but I improved. <laughs> I did improve. Um, so what kind of political activities were you involved in while you were at, at USC? Well, we had a lot of returning veterans. The great congressman was later came from there, Phil Burton. Uh, there was a very well-known Republican congressman whose name leaves me at this moment. And it was, um, there was the, at SC, they had what was called the non-orgs and the orgs. SC had never had an election in its history where the fraternity uh, area did not always win the sororities and fraternities. And <clears throat> we decided that we would take on the election with, there was, we had a young democratic club we put together and we were, Jess Unruh was involved, uh, Phil Burton was involved, I was involved, a guy named Padgett, I don't know what happened to him. But anyway, we ran um, him for president 
and we decided we would really put a campaign on. And they'd never been attacked before, or there'd never been any second group running. And we won. And they challenged the vote. And what happened was we were going to have another election, and they stole the ballots. And so we had to have another election. And we made a fuss beyond belief, and we won again. So I think it's the only time in history to this day that a non-org won an election at USC. But we were, we were working like mad. We just found every student who wasn't in a sorority or fraternity or we could talk to. So it was the beginning of my political career. But I had a real issue with the dean of students, and I almost got in as I say, almost got kicked out. So I think you need to tell that story now. <laughs> well, his name was Hyink. It was amazing. I can remember that actually. I wanted. I was involved in SE in bringing people to the campus for public uh, discussion or programs that we would have from outsiders that would come in. And for some reason, I was on a. a student board, that that was kind of the thing I did. And so I had gone ahead and invited some uh, the head of uh, the, the Russian delegation at the United Nations. And I didn't think he'd answer, and he said he would come. So pursuant to the rules, I had to get clearance for that. So I went, I wrote my notes and sent them to the dean of students, Dean Hying. And I did it, you know, for a number of days, never got an answer, tried, you know, meeting outside of his room or whatever it was. And he never answered me. So I said, what the heck? And my point was, can we not have uh, somebody from the communist Russia and we would have our side and we would have a real debate? I mean, I thought, this is a college, you do things like that. Well, a story came in the school paper, and it said to speak on campus was this member of the UN delegation. I got a, was pulled out of class, and I was called to the dean's office. And he said, you didn't have permission. And I said, look at your desk how many letters I have written to you. I tried in every way possible. And he said, well, we can't have those kind of people on our campus. And I, that's when I really made the argument. I said, we couldn't win a debate in Bovard Auditorium with a communist? I said, what are we afraid of? This is ridiculous. And he said, he just kept going back, you didn't have permission. I said, I did everything I was supposed to do. And he says, you call him and tell him he can't come. I said, I refuse to do that. I said, he's planning to come. We have the person who's going to debate against him, and I will not do that. And he said, well, young lady, I have to decide what we do about this and how this is going to involve you in this campus. Well, make a long story short, he didn't dismiss, didn't ask me to leave. We had the event, and he sat in the back of the room. It was mobbed, and we killed the communists. We just killed them. <laughs> and, I mean, the write-up was, you know, the USC's 
Uh, we had some students, we had some politicians, etc. Not very many. I mean, he brought two people with him, we had two. And we just won the debate. And he later never spoke to me again, and I did graduate, so he didn't pull my <laughs> diploma. And that's how close I came to getting kicked out of USC. Oh my gosh, that's a great story. I want to go off the record. Can I yeah, go off the yeah, record for a minute? Okay, so um, I understand that uh, Frank Gehry was at USC when you were there. Yes, uh, he, he was. We didn't exchange a lot, you know, we just, uh, but later in life I went on the Music Center Committee downtown for many years. And Frank obviously was very wonderful in this community. I mean, and we talked often or met at, you know, social events, etc. But unbeknownst to me, one day he said, you know, I was in love with you at school. And I never knew that. And I said, Frank, you should have told me. You know, I mean, I might have gone into architecture. <laughs> and so that was about the end of that little conversation. But what a lovely man. And the Disney Hall, I mean, his work is probably one of the greatest in all of America, in the world. Yeah. And nothing is as perfect as Disney Hall. I would agree. I don't think that story's very good. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Um, so while you were in college, you got in, involved in Helen Cahagan Douglas's campaign. How did that come about? Well, that's that's a story in itself. Um, I when Helen, I had done the speech in high school. And she then was running, it was 1950, my years are right, all mm -hmm. these years. And she was running, and I was at school, and um, SC. And one night I decided I would go hear her speak. And she was running for the Senate. I mean, a woman to run for the Senate it was going to be the first one in California, almost the first one in the nation. And a very few people in the Senate, may have been two at that point. I'm not sure how many in the U.S. Senate. But anyway, I decided to go to a meeting where she was speaking. And we were there, and she was very late. And people were really restless, and they didn't have some fill-ins. And I thought, well, she, she came in, and she was brilliant, just brilliant. The first time I'd ever seen people who wanted to almost reach out and touch an elected official. She had charisma, she had been on the stage, she was a singer, she she was a gorgeous woman, just a beautiful woman. But she made a great speech, but I thought, why is she so late? So then <clears throat> she made, um, I went to another speech where she came to SC. She was again late, very late. And she then asked for questions. And most people asked Helen Douglas nice questions. But I rose my, raised my hand and I said, Mrs. Douglas, why are you always late to meetings? And I said, it's very difficult to keep people. I said, I think people leave. And I said, I, that I, said, I think that, you know, it's not proper to be late. And I said, could you just... I." I told her I'd been to another meeting where she was late, and she said, well, um, young lady, 
I'm not sure I can tell you why I'm late, but it usually is a good reason. Something has come up, I may have to answer something, I may have to dictate something, I may be in traffic, it's, etc. And I didn't want to argue that. I would say, you, you know, you leave a half hour earlier then. But <laughs> I decided I really wouldn't fight, argue with her, you know. This is somebody I had put on a pedestal. And so she answered me. <clears throat> And at the end of the meeting, she walked over to me and said, you know, that wasn't a really great, nice question you asked me. And I said, well, Mrs. Douglas, I really feel that out of courtesy to the people who've come, and I continued with the argument, and she said, are you interested in politics? And I said, yes. And I said, I have followed your career from high school to college. And she said, okay, do you want to be in my campaign? And I said, do I want to be in your campaign? I said, that's, that's unbelievable. So she took out a card, and she wrote on it, and she said, see Ruth or Ed Liebeck at the headquarters and tell them that, you know, we, I'll write, uh, interview her on the card. You can hand it to them. They're the campaign managers. Well, I thought, look at me. I'm going down to the headquarters, and I'm going to be in Helen Douglas's campaign. And she even said I should see the person who ran it. Well, I got Ruth Liebeck, and she got the card. And I saw her kind of look at it and think, oh, boy. Later, I understood Helen did this a lot to send them down to Ruth and didn't know what to do with them when she got them. So she said, I'll tell you, I thought now I'm going to really be in a big part of this campaign. But she said, okay, I'll start you out with a job. And I thought, oh, a great job. She gave me quarter cards, 50 of them. And she said, we have no coverage <clears throat> Excuse me, on Hollywood Boulevard. We would like you to get these cards in the windows of the stores in Hollywood Boulevard. And I thought, well, I don't think that's very important, but maybe they test you or something. I was not very happy because I thought, oh, I'm going to have a big role in this campaign. And I got a quarter card. So anyway, I tried to go in. And they were smearing Helen as the pink lady, and it was a terrible, terrible, un... I could quit politics after that race, it was so bad, instead of wanting to go further. But anyway, I went with my quarter cards. I couldn't get one in one window. And I thought, my God, I'm, I can't go back and tell them I'm a failure already, and I want to be in this campaign. So I took a ladder <clears throat> and the quarter cards, and in those days, we had uh, poles, uh, light poles that were wood. And some were uh, obviously like a cement. So I took some ropes and I took a hammer and I went down Olympic Boulevard and I put them up, got out of my car, put them up. <clears throat> I got home and my mother had just received a check for my education, small policy, but it had just come in, 
And she said, you know, Roz, we'll put this to your education. And I said, Mom, you won't believe what I did today. And so I said, I wonder if that's legal. So I called the headquarters, and there was a $50 fine for every one of them. And I said, Mom, you were going to have to give my check for college to the campaign. I've got... <laughs> I, I can't, I can't, pay, we can't pay this. And so I went then at night and took them all down. Later, as the campaign went on, I, I had said, called, told Ruth Liebeck what I had done. And she said, well, you should have talked to me, Roz. She said, we have that happen all the time. All we do is say some, we don't know who put them up you know, particular, and you have to be caught, basically, or, you know, they'll call us and say, take them down or whatever. And so that was a very famous thing that I was involved in the Douglas campaign, and the Liebecks and Helen would tell the story about how I started in politics. And then I said, well, you know, I, I, then I brought up the lateness, and they said, do you want to drive Helen Douglas? And I said, do I want to drive with her? You know, I would be, she, they said, yes, you would be the driver. Do you want to do this? And I said, well, I got certain, you know, colleagues that I'm covering if I could do it in between. And I said, I'll miss a few classes if it's important <laughs> enough. And so I became her driver. And I just was the happiest person in the whole world. But the first few times I was with her, I almost got fired because here I had her in the car, just the two of us, and I was dying to talk to her. What do you think about the campaign? What about this? And she finally said, Miss Weiner, <laughs> we started out as Miss Weiner, and um, she said, you know, Miss Weiner, Roz, she said, I am tired when I get into the car. She said, I would like to rest in the car. I would appreciate it if you wouldn't be prepared with all these questions for me. <laughs> and she said, can we drive with a little less talking? And so that was our bond. And therefore, I was with her all the time. And it was very important to me that, like, I wanted her to come to my house. I didn't live here. I lived in a little house and on the Kenmore Avenue, and I wanted her to come to my house so we could have her for, you know, lunch or something, and she could rest and etc. So I finally got her to do that once. But when I got elected, I spent a month with her in New York. She had moved in. She did something that a lot of people didn't do. She had terrible debts at the end of that campaign, and she had a beautiful house on Sinalda Road in L.A., and she had to sell her house to pay her debt, but she was going to pay every single person who did anything for her. And so then she moved to New York. And when I got elected, I thought it would be smart because she was a woman and she could help me and she wanted me to come. And she gave me some good advice as a young person being elected. And we became inseparable friends, one of the closest people I've ever had in politics. They stayed when I, uh, when I got married. They'd always stay with us here. Her and her husband, Mel Douglas, was just 
a prince of a man. He was a great actor. And if anybody hasn't seen Ninochka, they ought to go see it because he had Greta Garbo, no less. But Melly, as she called him, was he made her a real, uh, he fought to, to meet her. And she was on the stage at that point. And it's, uh, Mel wouldn't quit. He just fell in love with her, seeing her and talked to her a couple of times. And the family wasn't very happy because he was partially Jewish. And they were a very, very strict um, Protestant uh, faith and very prominent in the East. And they w didn't want this at all. But Mel went out. And Mel took her, when they got married, drove from New York to California and he showed her farm workers and she became one of the heroes fighting for the farm workers the first one who cared how they lived and what they had to eat and then she because of that she became close to Eleanor Roosevelt so it was a, a match in heaven in a way the two of them Mel was a very, very active person in the guilds and things. They smeared him terribly, and that was one of the reasons they had to leave L.A. too. And he he got all involved in that, you know, the uh, communist people that they, uh, the Un-American Activities Committee. And so Mel was involved, and Mel had served in the service. He was a major, and... Um, he was uh, a, a very honored soldier. He flew the Himalayans. And by the way, he met my brother who was in the station in India by accident. And uh, But they were really pals. And then when Helen died, Mel stayed a lot with us. He, he and him, himself was a real leader in that industry, and he cared. And they were just a great pair, and she was the most important influence on my political career to start with. And yeah. uh, my daughter, when she was staying here once, she went to West, Westlake School, very upscale, private school, and she wanted Helen to come speak to the class. And I said, Betty, I'm not sure that Helen... <laughs> she, Helen went to bed with the Constitution by her. <laughs> she had it memorized. And if she was speaking, she wanted to speak about the Constitution. And I said, Betty, she's going to want to talk about the Constitution. And I said, I don't think these young women that you're associated with are going to be excited about this at all. And I said, I don't think that Helen's the person to go. And she said, Mom, I want Helen to come. Because, you know, she'd been in our house. and they, they, She said, and Helen could speak because of her drama and her, you know, the part of her life that she knew the stage. And when she delivered, you listened. And, oh, she could just make a speech. And Betty said, Mom, let me try. And I said, okay, Betty. You know, you say yes to your daughter. <clears throat> there was a, and she had a class in, like, uh, Modern Events. It was, I think, close to that title anyway. And she took Helen. And I said, well, I'll pick you up, you know, and I'll come to get Helen, and I'll pick her up after the class is over. And I said, but Betty, she's, she told Betty, I want to talk about the Constitution. I came to class. I could not believe it. The bell had rang, and the kids were still sitting there listening to her. 
she did a job on that class that was so incredible from how she could talk about that Constitution. And Betty was so proud, and she said, Mom, I was right. What did you learn about politics from Helen in those early years? I learned that it was rough, a rough business. And the saddest part was is that um, they really attacked her unfairly. There was a man in um, Congress at that time, I think his name was Vincent Marcantonio or something like that, and he was a very left-winger and supposedly was outreach of the socialists sort of stuff. He voted with the Democrats on social issues and on foreign policy, he voted the opposite way. And so then they tied Helen Douglas with Mark Antono. I'm not saying the name right, but it was, I'm close. Anyway, and he said that her record were alike, and they weren't alike at all. We then had what's called the bell ringers from Pasadena, and they jammed our switchboards. Uh, it was as ugly a campaign, and her campaign manager, what is that great saying, the, the ends justify the means, or the means justify the ends? And he said, we don't care. Later, uh, Nixon apologized for the Douglas campaign when he became president, because it was ugly. But it was, Helen had something that was so special with people. <clears throat> On the night of the election, the press just wouldn't let her alone. They wanted to see her cry. A woman, she was going to cry. And they just couldn't wait for it to happen. Helen Douglas didn't cry. But the next morning, I mean, she was dog-tired, dog-tired. And I called and I said, I'm on the way to the house. Is there anything I should pick up? And I said, how's Helen? They said, Helen's in San Francisco. I said, Helen's in San Francisco. I said, she was tired. Why would she go? She said that the workers up there, she had to go thank them. And she was going to get on an early plane, and she left at 6 or 7 in the morning. She'll be back tonight <clears throat> early. And she went to, to cheer them up and for what they had done. And I'll tell you, I'll never forget this story. She came off that plane, and I met her. It was in the Burbank Airport. And as she walked off the plane, um, uh, in those days they had uh, the guys who really carried the luggage. Uh, I don't know if they were called porters. That was what they actually were called on trains. But it was like a person who was kind of wore a little white jacket. or So you knew who they were in those days. And a man went up to her. And he said, Mrs. Douglas, I am so sad you lost. And the tears came down his face. She meant something to people in her district and certain people she touched. She was the first person to talk about civil rights and civil liberties and the farm workers and the uh, acreage of water and how it should be distributed in the farms. She was so far ahead of her time. And she, to the day of her death, she never changed. And she then went to the United Nations for a while. But she was a real hero of mine. She's a hero of mine, too. <laughs> um, are you good? You want to take a break? Or are we? No, just keep going. She's rolling. She's rolling. <laughs> 
Um, so after you were involved in... Uh... Oh, by the way, let me put a P.S. on the end of that. Um, I wanted to spend the last... Helen was still to get out of office, her last of her campaign, and I wanted to quit school and go to do that. And my mother called Helen and said, Helen, tell her she couldn't, you wouldn't hire her, please. <laughs> and so uh, I, I, though I wanted to go to law school, you know, was theoretically the next thing that would come up in my life. And my mother was not happy to have me quit college to end, you know, a few months that was left in, the, in that. But Adelaide Stevenson was running. And so I decided I liked Adley Stevenson, and I wanted to be in his campaign. So I didn't file to go to law school, and I took off to run, be a part of Stevenson's campaign. That became very, Stevenson is part of me getting elected uh, to the city council. And uh, my mother always felt I should have maybe been a lawyer, but I married one instead, a good one. Anyway, uh, but... I I stayed in that campaign and then from there uh, did not go to law school and then that led up to uh, being the part of picking the runner for the 5th Council District. So when you were in uh, Stevenson's campaign, what, what were you doing? Um, well, I was just really a gopher. I mean, uh, but as it turned out after being elected, then I became a very important person because I got a lot of publicity, etc. And I was put as a youth person in his campaign and met with him. Loved him, but he couldn't make a decision. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a whole story. <laughs> um, so after you work for Stevenson and you decide to not go to law school, um, what were your, you were involved in the Democratic County Committee at that point, right? Yeah, I had got, I had um, been active in the party. I had become National Committee woman of the Young Democrats. You only elected two in those days, now you elect a ton of them, but with Phil Burton. And I was very active, and Phil was just a character out of fiction. Uh, <laughs> you should do a story on Phil. He or he's left us so, and and that's a whole story that we lead into Pelosi. But anyway, um, I uh, decided that um, I would join with a committee that was going to pick a person to run in the fifth council district, and I would be the young Democrat or the youth person or whatever you want to call me at that point. And we were saying why city council was nonpartisan. And we said, why don't we still get some Democrats on it, was our goal at this group. And we said, well, here's an opening, no incumbent. And there may be a shot. So I was put on, I was part of this committee with kind of very important people in the party. And we decided we'd try to make some run at the city council of LA. And I was very vocal on this committee, and at the end of it, they didn't find anybody they really liked to run, and a couple of them turned to me. It was, it was not like favorable in a sense, but they said, you were so vocal for this whole thing, why don't you run? <laughs> I mean, it was not a, 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 
they were not actually praising me to do it, but they said, why don't you run? And I said, well, that's crazy. How could I run? I don't know how to raise money, and I don't know how to, other than walking, maybe. <laughs> and so um, I decided we'd try, because I could maybe use the Young Democrats, because I was National Committee woman, and that was a statewide. So anyway, it was, I filed... Um, you had to get so many signatures to run, and I, I think it well, you had to get I think around five hundred, and but you had to get because nobody you had to write it as you were registered on a petition, and most people don't know how they're registered, so you get extras. So we decided we needed a thousand, and we were that was really going to be tough. How do we get a thousand of them? But I filed five minutes before the deadline or the city council because of these stupid signatures. And as it turned out, because even what I turned in wasn't enough, but they they give you they gave you like a couple of days extra if you, you know, had turned in a certain amount. So I got the extra days and I made it. And then the campaign started. And for a city council race with no money and only volunteers um, things happened after the primaries, but it was epic. It was an epic campaign. Everything was handmade. We had a little piece of... Uh, my mother, again, <laughs> came forth and tried to see what we could get free. And some, one day somebody delivered boxes of unwrapped soap. And so Mom said, well, can you use this? And I said, Mother, I can't go door to door with sweaty soap in my hand that's unwrapped. You know, what are we going to do? In fact, there's a piece of it upstairs, I think, still. But anyway, we took a little uh, cellophane and we put the soap in it. And in those days, like a business-sized card, you could get like 50,000 pieces of literature for like 100 bucks. And so we bought those and we put a card in. And then I started door to door, and everybody who was in the campaign, we was my headquarters was my home. I had not left home yet from SC because um, my brother had returned from service, and my mother and father we were not we were not rich. They were you know middle class, maybe even lower a little bit. They worked hard. They were druggists, you know, and they had a mom pop drugstore. And they wanted to help my brother. So I stayed home, and you know, I then I had a job as well. So the headquarters was my home, and we uh, then did every mimeograph machines. We made everything, you know. But I got this little piece that was soap, and we all carried the soap. And our slogan was, "You want to clean up the city, use our soap." <laughs> and of course, people when you knocked on the door, often I would try to say that this is me running and they had trouble you know and sometimes I would leave the door walking down they yell is that you to run you know I mean I made my pitch and everything but they didn't always connect with it do you think that and, was because you were so young so young I mean they, they just thought I was you know helping somebody out and then my mother came up with another thing <laughs> my mother was just unreal and so she, we had, you know the little things where you clear your uh, eyes with a little uh, uh, plastic type of thing? 
they were uh, stickers and you pull, pulled them out and you cleaned your glasses. Yeah. She got those unwrapped. So we made a package of them. And if you really want to see City Hall and see through it, use our uh, eye savers. So we had gimmicks. And my great nephew, he, he, he sold polywogs. <laughs> and um, I mean, we did strange things. My mother again went to card games. <laughs> And she took so much off of every, every there was poker and there was bridge, etc. And she would take, again, a dollar or two dollars off of every, uh, you know, pot or something that went to the campaign. We ran on, I think it was like $1,500, $1,700 was all we had in money. I, I walked um, about five, six hours a day. And there's a picture in Life magazine after the primary, about six, seven pairs of shoes that were really uh, just rotted on my feet. I walked so much. But the primary, uh, you know, we had to win the primary, and we only run the primary by about 900 votes. But we, uh, again, we took Adlai Stevenson's number of his election and laid it onto the, we, we weren't all, we'd been in some campaigns and we do a few things and we laid Adlai Stevenson's vote in the fifth council district uh, where there would be Democrats. So we concentrated only on those voters. And the kids would come from the, the weekends often and on Monday night, I Love Lucy was on and we knew people were home. So we would go not to interrupt Lucy, but before Lucy or after Lucy. Because if you do precinct work, so many people aren't home, they're working or they're, you know, it doesn't work and you waste your time. So we picked Lucy and it was, Monday night was always big and mother would make a stew or a spaghetti and we'd feed them and then we'd start precinct work. And we made our, we put a thing on the door. We have come to visit you for Roz Weiner and uh, campaign, we had a little thing and we stuck it on the door, on the hanger. And we made all this stuff. And uh, we did one uh, first in the primary by, I think it was maybe 900 votes. Can't remember exactly. Anyway, and uh, so then we thought we, you know, we proved myself a little bit, although I still I had no newspaper, etc. So some friends helped me. They said, we know people at the LA Times and the Mirror, they had two newspapers. Maybe we could get you some labor support and maybe we could get you some newspapers. So we got a few of those, one newspaper, and um, they said, we will help you. We don't know if we'll really give you endorsement at the thing. The LA Times always won city elections. They controlled it, basically. And through the, they would pick somebody. And the one they had picked to win in my race, there were six or seven of us, by the way, in that race in the primary. But I also used last on the ballot and first in your heart. We had gimmicks and crazy <laughs> things like that all over the place. But anyway, um, we then got a little support, you know, to, to run. But we still, and what happened to me, nobody paid attention to me. And they knew I couldn't win. I mean, in the primary, just because, well, it was a runoff of seven people and this guy Marshree's going to win. He's the pick. And we found out that Marshree 
had cheated veterans in the, in the war. And so I had a teacher who just adored me. And she, uh, she had a husband who was a right winger and he was a le legionnaire. He was American Legion. Hillis McFadden, I loved that name. It was just perfect. Hillis McFadden was going to become the head of our committee on truth and justice and politics. <laughs> Nicholas McFadden didn't have the slightest idea what this meant or knew about it or anything, but my friend, uh, the teacher, uh, his wife, she was just great. She was really a spitfire. And she just kept Hillis going, and we said, well, if anybody ever calls you, we'll fill you in what to say. And she said, Roz, I'll take care of it. Don't worry, Hillis will be there for you. And well, now we had an American Legion officer. You know, I mean, in other words, and we, we went on the fact that this man had, had cheated people. And so the, the Committee on Truth and Justice, which didn't have an address or didn't have anything, <laughs> had come forth with Hillis McFadden saying what this man had done. It was great in those days. Anyway, <clears throat> then later people said, well, we never could get that, get that office. Find the office. There was no office. <laughs> was there home? I mean, if anything. So then we started to pick up some stuff you know, that we might have a chance. But <clears throat> what then happened was we really, really started, I really pressed hard for the Young Democrats on the weekends and any time we could get them, and we really started to do precinct work. And, and we did come up with a one little kind of smallest piece of literature, or at least have my faith, but on it was one of the things I said, bring Major League Baseball on this little card that said what I was for. And that's the beginning of another rather interesting story in my life. But election night in the finals was one of the great nights in my political career. The returns were always done by city, at City Hall in those days. There was a man who'd done it like for 20 years and he was well known. His name was Joe Michikay. And they would bring him bulletins. It, all the reports and all the deliveries for the elections was taken to City Hall and they had counters and, you know, et cetera. And the bulletins was bulletin one, bulletin two, whatever it was. And we had then checked some of the precincts and we had done better than we thought and the ones we were going to win. And um, we, we thought we were going to do very well. We thought there might be just a possibility that I'm going to win this thing. But the bulletins that he would report were given to him, we didn't find this out till later, to him. My name was obviously under Marsheries, but they would bring it in and it, it they had it right on the what was handed him, but he'd never heard of Weiner. He didn't have a piece of paper on me. He didn't have a background on me. So you know how they'll say that this person got a vote and say something about him or something, and nothing on me. And what happened was this kept happening, and we said something's wrong. They're, they're not reporting what our numbers are showing by checking our precincts. 
So I had a very aggressive young lawyer, and he says, I want to go down to City Hall and see what's going on there. So he went down, and he called us, and he said, Roz, you won't believe this. They are, he's transposing, they're giving him the right bulletin numbers, but he's not using them. And so what happened was he raised a fuss. And what then happened, uh, Joe Michike put his hand over the microphone, didn't realize he could still be heard. He said, somebody give me something on this whiner to hand me something. And uh, he said, I don't know anything about her and I don't care, but this, you know, I've had these bulletins and now I hear that maybe the numbers are right. And, and it came through the microphone. It's a piece that I can't find in my life. It's so historic. They were, he then had to find out something about me. And he said, well, he apologized. He said, I have done something improper down here. I never had heard of Miss Weiner, and I didn't know that she could possibly have these numbers, and I have reversed them. And therefore, I did win, and I to this day, I can't remember what the, the numbers were, but I did win, and of course, the great headline was, It's a Girl. <laughs> Famous headline. Famous headline. Um, I just want to go back for a second. You talked about your mom. How did your parents react when you told them you wanted to run for city council? Well, it was a big discussion in my family. My father was 150% against it. He says, you don't want to go into that business, you know. Why would you want to do that? You don't want to get into politics. That's not for... You know, you, you become a lawyer and, you know, have a family and et cetera, et cetera, and you shouldn't do this. And my mother said, Oscar, <laughs> always was Oscar, she should run and we will help her. And she should do this if she believes in it. And there is no way if she is really determined to do this that we are not going to back her and she should do it. So Roz Weinman, Roz Weiner ran, <laughs> and well, you know, with the total help of the family, obviously. And as I say, our, my home was my headquarters, and um, my but my mother was in all, all the way along. I'm sure Daddy, my dad, wanted me to win, but he wasn't sure he wanted me to win. <laughs> he later confessed that, but. Mother was really excited, and I mean, my mother was, that night of my election was just, it was just very special, and then we went down to City Hall, obviously, to be sworn in. It was a great day for my whole family. I had a brother who was wonderful, too, and he was much older than I was, and uh, <clears throat> it was a wonderful night for our family, and all the young Democrats had their first victory in, in anything in the state of California for sure, and uh, they, we, you know, it was it was quite a start. And I I must say I handle myself a lot differently than the young people who have just been elected this last year. I had a different philosophy as a young person going into the city council. What was your philosophy going in? Well, one thing I realized that. I didn't know if I would be liked because number one, I was a woman. Number two, I was young. And 
most of the people on the city council were old enough to be my father or my grandfather. And I didn't know how deep the resentment might be, but it was incredible. And I decided that I had to prove myself not only to my constituents, but to the city council. And I decided as a young person just being elected that it was very important not to speak right away and to learn what, how do I get something done and what do you do. I had one champion named Eddie Roybal who became a congresswoman, ran for lieutenant governor. My mother was in love with Eddie Roybal <laughs> and gave him a headquarters. We had a little place, of a little spot on first in Vermont. And uh, Ed was the only one who really supported me. And Ed, every time I would come to his door, he'd say, uh-oh, what has she got now that I have to second? Because after a while, but I didn't want to speak too soon. But what happened to me, and I never wore bright clothes. I never wanted to stick out from them. I didn't want more attention than I was getting, because they didn't like it anyway. So I tried to mix with them and mill with them and be a part of them. And as I say, I didn't want to speak, but what happened was the mayor, and it was kind of an unwritten rule, that the mayor picks his, the commissioners or the, the, you know, the park commissioners or this is all appointed people. And I, there's a whole story that I don't know how to get into for you, but the <laughs> council had disappeared and they had to be, there was no quorum, and they, because there were three of us that won, and we would make the difference of a very liberal becoming president of the city council, and the police were sent to find them, and they weren't, they were hiding, and they had to wait for about four or five days till they all came back, and that's a whole story in itself, and they would call me at weird hours and say, you're going to be offered a lot for your vote, you know, but don't, Eddie was was my contact, and uh, anyway, so that um, um, what, oh I know, and so what happens was I got Parks and Recreation, which is what I wanted, and um, under the Parks and Recreation, also a Library Commission, and. Mayor Polson appointed a woman to the Library Commission who was in favor of book burning. Right-wing lady, very well known in politics, in Republican politics, and uh, I came to my committee. And I went to Eddie Roybal, and I said, Ed, I can't I can't support that woman for this. He said, Roz, it's an unfitting rule. The mayor gets to pick who he wants, and we just accept it. I said, well, I don't think that's right. I said, he could put her on, there's 20 commissions. Put her on, you know, uh, put her on uh, water and power. Put her on, you know, whatever. Uh, I said, so I went to see him, and he says, Roz, I was pushed to push, push her, and I am like her, and I know her, and I'm not going to take her off. So I said, Eddie, will you second a motion that I put up to uh, 
go after this appointment, improperly putting somebody on whose favorite book burning. And we just <laughs> couldn't understand it at all. And so unbeknownst to me, um, I did not know this, but they would, could fill the city council chambers with people who would be on her side as well. And so there was one of the, and most of the council people, I'd never seen so many people show up, but it was my first big battle. And so I spoke before I wanted to, and I went down to glorious defeat, <laughs> but I uh, was kind of my first introduction as an elected official, you know, how to, what happened. And um, therefore I spoke before I wanted to, but I still waited a couple of months, luckily, till you know, he made his appointment. Okay. But I really felt it was important to prove myself as well as I said to my constituency and to the council. And uh, in my last years, I was president pro tem of the council. And I'd come a long way. And usually if I went had an issue, I would then go to see them, I would tell them why I had done the work on it, what I meant, you know, what I was for and why I was for it. And I, I won a lot of battles that way and I got acceptance. And then of course when I got pregnant there was another problem that was raised, first woman, obviously, and nobody in elected office except Yvonne Burke had had a child and that was after me in Congress who had given birth, and I was elected, as it turned out, that I was the first woman, it's hard to believe, in a United States in a major city, minor cities, you, they were elected, but uh, like New York and uh, uh, Chicago, Illinois, uh, Chicago, the bigger cities, and never had a woman on the major city council. So the press on me was just quite overwhelming, you know. And I was asked to do things that, with the party, I was asked to speak at a Jefferson Jackson Day dinner, you know, with uh, with President Truman, <laughs> and you know, I mean, in other words, there was a lot happening to me as well. So um, um, that was my start as a city official, and of course, then um, the major thing, of course, came along was the. One of my issues, obviously, was to bring Major League Baseball to L.A., and that seemed to project me into another <laughs> different career in politics that I didn't quite expect. <laughs> um, well, before, before we get to, to that, um, I, I know at some point uh, Eleanor Roosevelt helped you out with one of your campaigns, and I want to make sure we, we got that story in here. Was, you want to tell me a little bit about uh, that? It was just a great moment in my life. I just adored Eleanor Roosevelt. <clears throat> and Helen Douglas talked a lot about Eleanor Roosevelt. So, And my mother loved Eleanor Roosevelt, and she was invited once to have tea with Eleanor Roosevelt. So my mother was an Eleanor Roosevelt fan, but the room we're now sitting in, Eleanor Roosevelt came to my home. Jimmy Roosevelt, I became a very close friend, and he was lived here, and he was very active in politics, obviously. And after the Stevenson campaign, Jimmy said, we, we got a picture with Stevenson, by the way. I didn't tell you that. I forgot when we ran. We had a little picture of Stevenson and me. And that was our only second piece of literature when I ran. 
But he said, would it be helpful if mother maybe endorsed you or did something with you? And I said, Eleanor Roosevelt with Roz Wyman? I said, oh my God, that would be the greatest thing that could happen to me in my life. So he said, well, I'll make an arrangement that mother will, will, next time she comes or when she's coming to meet with you, you get a picture and you can use it any way you want and I'll explain why I'm asking mother to do this because she usually doesn't involve herself in city council races in Los Angeles or most cities. But he said, you know, Roz, I'll, I'll be happy to do it for you. So we got a date, and Ellen, but he said, now remember, you don't have small talk with her. You don't discuss the world. You don't discuss FD, her husband. You don't discuss us. You don't. She comes up. She coming for a picture. She takes a picture. She says, thank you very much, probably, and leaves. And he said, you know, you have your camera person ready, and this is the rules. So I got a woman who I'd known as a camera woman, and um, I said, Jimmy, I promise I'll do exactly what you're saying. So she arrived, and I'll tell you, it was my, my first introduction to her, and she was so stately. I almost felt like kneeling <laughs> to this woman. And she came into this room, and she said, are we ready? And I said, yes. I had told the, the woman to be prepared and don't fool around, take the picture. Can we have a break? Yeah. Well, Sorry, right. Right. <laughs> We're good. Anyway, it was this room. <laughs> if I don't remember anything, I remember that. Anyway, <clears throat> she came in and I had told the camera woman, be ready. You know, just quickly take the picture, you know. I'll have her stand. I have pre prepared where she would stand so that we practice, you know, etc. And I, I want to do everything right. And so the camera woman looked at her and she couldn't take the picture. She, she, she melted. There was Eleanor Roosevelt in front of her. And she she couldn't get the camera focused. She couldn't. It was it was. I was panicked, and so then Eleanor Roosevelt saw what was happening with her, and she went and put her arm around her, and that was even worse. <laughs> now Eleanor Roosevelt has got her arm around her, and she just can't put herself together. Finally, we did get the picture. But Eleanor Roosevelt told Jimmy the whole story, and she said, I spent a little more time up there with Ross than I planned to, but I had my picture with Eleanor Roosevelt. We finally got everybody together. But she was an overwhelming figure. And I never, th and the woman apologized most profusely. She said, oh, just give me, you know, another a few minutes, I'll I'll get it. Well, she knocked the camera like to the side, and when Eleanor Roosevelt came and stood by her over in the corner there, I mean, it was just too much. So that was my great Eleanor Roosevelt story. And then I had one other with her one day. I was driving with Liz, and we were taking her somewhere. Liz Snyder had been chairman of the party. It was my best friend politically almost. And her car broke down. 
And we had Eleanor Roosevelt in the car. And I said, Eleanor Roosevelt will not be happy. She'll think when I'm with her, something's going to happen. <laughs> so we, we had to quick get somebody to come with another car to move us to the meeting. But I thought, oh, my goodness. Eleanor Roosevelt and Ross Wyman's just have one mess up after another. <laughs> but she was so gracious, so gracious. I mean, what a what a woman, what a first lady. I mean, they they all could learn from her. They really could, and many did. Yeah, I would agree. Um, okay, so we jumped a little bit forward with the with the Eleanor Roosevelt story, but um, somewhere in here you you met your husband, Gene Wyman. <laughs> Then um, how did that how did that come about? Well, <clears throat> Gene really, really was the most special man I've ever known in my life. He really was, and I was lucky that he found me. <clears throat> we had a great, great marriage, and we did everything together. We really did. But <clears throat> Gene uh, had read about me, and he was kind of active in politics. And his office was at the corner of Wilshire and Beverly Drive in Beverly Hills. And he um, found out, he, he was kind of fascinated with my election, as the story goes. And Jerry Geisler, who was one of the great trial lawyers of all time, was hosting a meeting for me with lawyers in Beverly Hills. I'm elected now at this mm -hmm. point. And Gene wanted to go to the luncheon, and he couldn't get anybody in the office to go. They could care less of his partners. So he went. Uh, he said he asked me a question at the meeting, but obviously I did not remember that. And he went back and he said, I just think I saw the woman I'd like to marry to his partner. And I thought he was nuts, <laughs> you know, really. So anyway, he then plotted how to meet me. And he tried to find somebody. He found somebody who had dated me a little bit, who was a lawyer, and he thought he might call him, and he did call him. And he said, I want to date her. I'm not going to fix you up. And so that didn't work. So he, he found out in my speech, I was getting, uh, the Herald didn't like, uh, the Herald newspaper gave me a bad time. They decided I was ultra-liberal and I was going to be bad for the city and there was a woman editor named Underwood there, which was really sad, the only kind of woman in her position, but they really went after me. So I had decided uh, we had had some, a lot of mail that was ugly, a lot of mail that was anti-Semitic, a lot of mail that was really terrible, that in the speech I said I never drove alone when I went someplace. And Gene picked that up. And he then, he had uh, one of his biggest clients owned, uh, was a president of a temple in the valley. And he arranged with that person to invite me to speak and that he would be told that in the letter that they would give me transportation. They would cover it. And that um, they gave me the, then that uh, he would, they would give Gene Wyman's name and that he would then, you will be called for 
arrangements so that it'll make it easy for you in the valley because it's not my district and it was a Friday night. So I had a wonderful secretary, by the way. In those days, by the way, there was 15 councilmen and 15 chief secretaries. And her name was Mary Zins. And nobody wanted to be my secretary, by the way. They didn't want to work for a 22-year-old, the <laughs> ladies down there. And so there was one woman named Mary Zins, and she had six kids. And she said, I'll take her. So Mary Zins was my secretary, and she would loved in City Hall was one of the great things that did have to happen to me by accident. But Mary happened to be, we got a call and it happened to be a day that Mary was doing a, a doctor's appointment or something and was not in the office when this phone call came in. And it was this young man saying he was to call to talk to me about arrangements for this meeting. And for some reason, <laughs> We looked at the temporary, said, Mrs. Wyman, I've got somebody says he's from a temple and he's supposed to meet you or something. And she said, I don't seem to have it listed on your calendar. And I looked at my calendar. For some reason, I didn't have it either. So I said, well, that's a new one. <laughs> you know, I'd had proposals of marriage and I'd had a lot of stuff. I said, now we got a temple. Somebody, the rabbi now is involved. In <laughs> uh, fact, he signed, the rabbi signed the letter and the president. And so I said, well, this is a phony probably. I said, just say that you will take my, his number. We'll call him back. So sure enough, that afternoon, a letter comes in from the temple. And... It's clear Mary, for some reason, did not... She had a separate calendar, and she had not transferred for this reason uh, anyway that whether I was going to go to this. It was a second... They had called, and then they said they'd sent a letter. And she, had, she had it in her book, but her she wasn't there that day, and the substitute didn't know that, and it's never been transferred to my book. So we said, my gosh, he's legitimate. You know, this man is really right. He's not a phony. Because here's the letter. And I said, what was the name? And she said, Gene Wyman. And I said, well, obviously, you know, this is, we, we were rude to him, basically. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, you call him back and tell him that I will get to the valley by myself and I have dinner with friends and he can drive me home, you know. And so uh, we called him, and the arrangements were made. Get to the, do the meeting. After the speech, you go to a social, you know, you have some tea or coffee or whatever it is. My uncle shows up at the meeting. And to the side of me, you know, people are coming up and talking. There's a referee going on. I'll take her home. No, I'll take her home <laughs> at this point. And I I finally, you know, turned to him and I said, I want to go home. It's Friday. I've, I've spoken enough all week. And I said, Uncle Bon, why don't you forget it? It's out of your way. They've arranged some person here. Let them take me home. And I want to go now. <laughs> so we go out. Jean says, I'm the person to drive you. Good-looking guy, short hair, beautiful 
blue jacket with a blue shirt and a blue and white tie and uh, navy blue pants with a blazer. And I thought, well, he's kind of cute cock. He's okay, I guess. <laughs> the rabbi said he's okay. So we go and there's a bla baby blue Cadillac convertible. And I said, oh, you didn't have to get that kind of a car to drive me. Anything would have been, he looked very young. And I said, you didn't have to get that. He said, well, that's my car. So now I've insulted him the first time for the car. So we get into the car, and I, I always later thought about Helen Douglas, and I was tired, really tired, and he wants to talk. And I am quite rude in answering his questions. And I said, you know, I'm really tired. Let's maybe not talk and he said well before I <laughs> say let's not you know I will certainly honor what you're asking me to do and he said but you know I made a reservation just thought it might be fun to go to the coconut grove tonight and a little different something for you and I said well who's at the grove and he said Tony Martin and I said gee I kind of like Tony but I don't have time to play and he then proceeded, he said, very quiet then for a while, and then he proceeded to say, let me tell you how I got to drive you. And I thought, wow, that was really very nice of him, and maybe I at least give him go out, you know, to a drink with him or something. So we make the date. The night of the date, it's a, he has to pick me up at my house, and I said, so I had an accident, a very serious accident in a corner, and I was listed. I was one of the few people that listed my phone the whole time I was in office. And Jean had some questions about that later when we were married, when a cat was up a tree and somebody would call and say, will you please get the cat down or the buses, the buses aren't running and do we have to get a call at 2 o'clock in the morning or whatever. But anyway, he... Um, he I said, Mom, I don't have a phone number for this man who's picking me up. I said, you've got to talk to him. And her story later was even funnier. And she, uh, so I said, I have to go. And I said, I don't know when I'll be back. And just say, we'll redo it. We'll reschedule it. But I said, if he wants to hang around, you know, give him a little time maybe. And and whatever I said it's up to you you decide what to do now it's your problem I gotta leave so I went to the corner I didn't come back for an hour and a half and my mother her story is I told him every story I knew I fed him she said I couldn't get him to leave <laughs> he kept waiting and waiting so finally I came and I my mother grabs me first and tells takes me in she says this guy sat here all night he wants to go and you better go with him my mother's still giving me advice. And so I went back in, and he said, well, I've changed the reservations, you know, about every half hour. And he said, why don't you go? And I said, okay, we'll go. Well, we went to the Coconut Grove, and we I had a nice, really nice time. And uh, the next morning, I had two and a half dozen Roses delivered to me and said, Tony and I enjoyed your company. I never saw anybody after that point, and the romance started. And uh, we later met Tony 
and Tony and Sid Cerise, he was married to Sid Cerise and that thing, we became very good friends. And Tony loved that story and they became friends and I ended up marrying Gene Wyman. <laughs> he had to get rid of a girlfriend, by the way. <laughs> but I didn't at that moment have to worry about anything because I really didn't have much playtime right. at that point in my life. And he was the best father, the best husband, the best friend of his clients that you could have. And it's just a very sad part of my life was when Jean died at 46. I can only imagine. Um, so I know you gave birth to all three of your children while you were in the city council. Um, and no, not Brad. Okay, so. Two out of two three. Two out of three. Um, how did you handle all of that? Well, the first thing I had to do, well, to take leading into that, once we had announced the engagement, it was all over the paper. Everything I did, it seemed to make the papers, and it was all over the papers. And I had to ask to be excused from the city council. Those were the rules if you wanted to. We met five days a week in those days, and you had to ask to be excused because for a quorum, so vacations, you know, you would say I want a week for vacation or whatever it was. So I got up in the city council and asked to be excused. And there was some, you know, you, you fight with people, but it was not much nicer atmosphere than you see in a lot of politics today. And they knew that this was going to come in, and they all voted no, that I couldn't have those days off. <laughs> and I was really upset. I called Jean. And I said, I guess our honeymoon's off. <laughs> we get married, but they won't let me go. And so then my seatmate got up and said, let's rescind that motion. And the, I had to wait a day, though. The next day they did it so I, I could go. So anyway, when I told them I was pregnant, there was a meeting held with the councilman. I was not present. And they said, well, she certainly is not going to stay here through the pregnancy. What are we going to do? And so the president of the council, who was a lovely man, came to me and said, Roz, the council's concerned. What are you going to do through your pregnancy? And I said, well, I'm going to work. And they said, well, the men are very concerned about it. They can see you standing up there being very pregnant, and they don't think it's proper etc etc and I said what's the matter with these people they've had wives have they've married they have sisters they've seen pregnant women in their lives and they really didn't want me to stay they wanted to work out that you know or I stay in my office and you know they had all these different things that they thought of and I said I'm staying and I'm gonna stand up there until the day I have to leave to go have a baby and so he said, okay, I'll support you, and I will take it up. And that's what I did. But one thing happened to me on the baby uh, during the Dodger fight. And uh, I left home, and I, I had to be on the floor constantly. And so... Um, Jewish holiday came too, where where usually some of the people who weren't even Jewish and wanted to go to temples for political reasons would leave, but I had to stay because of the Dodgers. And so um, 
uh, what happened was, gee, I thought I was having labor pains. And I said, I gotta go downtown. You know, it takes so many hours, so this whole, this whole thing's put together, and maybe it's a false start, but I have to go. And so I went down, and Gene called my seatmate, my poor seatmate got all these calls. And he said, Roz is Tim, Roz is Timberlake was his name. He said, Roz may be in labor, and I can't possibly get downtown to drive her. Would you drive her to the hospital as a favor? And uh, Tim said, oh, okay, Gene, <laughs> you know, if I have to, I will. Maybe it will, you know, maybe the council meeting, maybe it won't happen, maybe she... So he, it was really sweet. He came over and patted me on my hands, and he says, Roz, are you in labor? And I said, yeah, but it's just early. I'm okay. And then I went, <laughs> And he said, uh-oh. So we had a thing called Set for Hearings, where the public talks. And um, he decided that he didn't want to drive me. And I was very close to the Police and Fire League. And he would get a policeman or a fireman to sit in the council chambers. And if it happened, they could drive me, one of them. He said, they're more put together to take this kind of an emergency and let them deal with her. And so we went to the president of council. He says, Ross may be in labor. And so Tim, the president of council's name was John Gibson. He says, John, and he said, maybe we ought to get out of here. <laughs> Let's get out of the chambers. Now the set for hearings are set, and we announce all of a sudden uh, that the public hearings will be canceled and we are going to adjourn. <laughs> People don't know what's happened, and they didn't tell me till I, Tim finally said, "Rods, we don't want to. I want those policemen to wait for you, firemen actually, a friend of firemen." And he said, he'll hang around if you have to go to your office. But he said, we're not going to be here if this happens. We don't want to be here. And it was one of the times that the public didn't get hurt because of my pregnancy. And then I ended up going to the doctor that day. And, of course, that's another story, too. Uh, I wanted to go to opening day of the baseball game, and I was getting awful close. And if I didn't have that baby pretty soon, the doctor, I had I had miscarried once in a, a, a meeting and convention in, in, in Chicago, actually, Adelaide Stevenson. And I lost the child. And uh, so they were, you know, they were, they gave me a couch. I was supposed to rest and I never rested. But I went to the doctor and, but I said, you know, he said, you know, Rod, you've not done anything that I've asked you to do. And he said, you know, you, you lost a child. And he said, you know, we've tried to have rules for you, and you haven't followed any of them. And he said, in those days were very old-fashioned. I mean, you stayed in the hospital three, four days after having a child. Now, you know, they push you out the same day, practically. But anyway, he says, you're going to stay in the hospital. And... He said, I don't want to hear about opening day of ball games or any of this sort of stuff. It was kind of funny when they would examine me. I did so much radio during that point when we were in the Dodger things. And one time they, he was examining me and I was on the radio talking to the radio in, a, in an examining room. And he said, this is like crazy, this patient I've got. Anyway, so I gave birth 
And the uh, first thing I said, is Jean okay? And Jean was okay. And I wanted a girl desperately because there's boys all over the family. And we had, a boy, we had a girl. And I said, in the delivery room, could I go to the opening day of the ball game? And the doctor said, I don't want to talk about that right now. He said, you've just given birth to a child. <laughs> he said, you're supposed to stay in the hospital a few days and it may cross, you know, it's going to affect opening day. And I said, well, let's, can we talk about it again? He said, yes, we'll talk about it again. So what I did was I got a friend to call him and invite him to opening day of the ball game. And so he, as his end of the story is, he didn't know what to do because he's now not letting me go after my role with the Dodgers and he's going to be at the ballpark and I'm not going to be. And he said, I don't know what I'm going to do about this and I want to go. So he called me and he says, Roz, I, I know you want to go to the ball game. He says, you're now home and you're fine. And he says, you know, you followed me two days out of three or whatever it was that he wanted. And he says, there's no reason. I'm going to the ballpark, so I will be in the ballpark if anything happens to you. And I never told him the story for years and years and years. And I, sure enough, but I did one other thing that I didn't tell him. There was a parade. And I was <laughs> going to be in that parade the day before or the day of, whatever it was. And I wrote no less with Don Drysdale and Sandy Koufax, who I didn't know a lot about at that point. And I'll never forget, I'm, I sat down, it was a convertible, so nobody would see me. And I didn't want the doctor to know or anybody to say it. So I sat down and they sat on the thing. And I'll never forget, Sandy turned to me and he said, this is the first parade we ever had in L.A. like that, with confetti and going down. It was very exciting to me. And I never saw so many people, and Sandy says, oh, we have more people across the street in New York in a day, any day. It was Sandy's line in the car. Anyway, we became great friends later, but I was in the parade, and I didn't tell him about that because <laughs> I would really have gotten in trouble. But anyway, I made the parade, and I made the ball game, and it took me years to tell the doctor that story. He said, I should have known that you arranged for me to get into that ballpark. So that's the baseball story and the baby. But I had three babies, but on the, on the second baby... The Cedars, they would bring out the babies, you know, put them in your rooms, and they would take everybody off the floors, you know, any visitors, et cetera, et cetera, because you could have the babies in the rooms with you. But John Gibson was president of city council, and he came to Cedars to visit me. All the babies were out, and they said uh, they didn't allow visitors, basically. <laughs> I became very unpopular at Cedar sinai Hospital in this division, and John came in and they said, he said he came to visit me, and they, he said he was president of Los Angeles City Council, and they thought he was so important. They took all the babies off the floor to let him come visit me, and then they brought the babies back. So the department of, of uh, the pediatrics department, and then one time, on my, uh, was on my second baby too, I was doing, uh, that was on the third baby, I guess it was, I was doing some literature to try to get somebody elected. 
And so I knew the routine by then. You know, they take you from one room, they get you ready, etc., etc., what they do. And so I said, I can't stay here. I've got to have a phone. And the nurse, head nurse, was called and said, she wants to move out of room to get to a phone. And she said, Mrs. Wyman, it's very irregular. And I said, well, i got to get this piece of literature out. i got no choice. you got to take me. Well, I was stronger than she was. Takes me down to the room. I'm on a phone. The doctor comes looking for me and says, where is she? And he said, well, she's on a phone down the hall. And he said, is she close? And he said, very close. And he, he said, well, let me go get her. And he said, what are you doing? I said, this piece of literature, I showed him, has to get out, and I have to wait a minute, and I'll go with you. And so <laughs> it's the same doctor. And he said, oh, my God, am I glad that I'm getting rid of her. There's no more babies. <laughs> anyway, he was a great doctor. Dr. Silton was his name. Uh, I'm sure he remembered I, you. Yeah, <laughs> I have baby stories. He said he used to tell the stories even after he retired. <laughs> Um, you want to take a break or are you good? I don't know. Let's keep going. How much have we got? Well, we're, we're uh, you know, we're, we're, they want we're up to 1960. <laughs> Do I don't need any more lipstick? No, no, you're good. You're good. Okay. Um, so you've, you're on the city council. You've uh, had a couple kids, and uh, John F. Kennedy decides to run for the presidency. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about your involvement? Well, <clears throat> I was <clears throat> I was uh, very interested in John Fitzgerald Kennedy's campaign. And I early signed up um, to see what I could do. They reached out to me and I thought, well, I really think this man is going to be special. And I do want to do more than most people most, that I've done up for a lot of other races, although I've been in presidential races from Adlai Stevenson to every Democrat up to John Fitzgerald Kennedy. But I, have, I figure I can work some time out and do a little bit more maybe than usual. So what happened was they were so well organized. It was just wonderful from the standpoint of a campaign. His sister lived here, married to Pat, uh, to uh, Peter Lawford, the actor, lived at the beach. <clears throat> and they did this all over America. They would put a group of people who were active. I like represented city or young, or well, I wasn't so young at that point, but I was 30 at this point. And uh, they would put groups together all across America. And when John Kennedy traveled, you would meet with him, or you would meet without him, but you would be a line of information or issues that you would know about. And you would, when he was there, you would sit with him, and you had like assignments that you would do. <clears throat> and then you would, if something came up, you had a contact with the campaign and you would say, you should take a look at this, maybe this is a hot issue for us if you're coming to town, be prepared, etc. Always prepared. Always prepared. This was going across all of America and I loved it. I thought it was the best organization I'd ever seen. So then we decided that along the line that we would fight to get 
um, I was in, uh, on the committee to see if we could get the convention in Los Angeles in 1960. And <clears throat> Jess Unruh and I were very, very active, and Pat Brown, there was a lot of candidates then. It was Lyndon Johnson, and there was a whole bunch of them. And we would see if we could get the convention in, in L.A. Long story short, a <laughs> short story, we got the convention. And I became in charge of arrangements for the convention. And um, the um, we did the sports arena. At, uh, we were going to, and all the things were put together in the sports arena. The the uh, TV uh, booths were built, etc. It was not a great facility, but it was good enough. Uh, and we worked. Uh, very diligently to hold our delegation, but we had a problem because Pat Brown felt a favored son with all these candidates. Maybe he should be a favored son in in this part of the world. And so at the last, even though we were close to Pat, you know, we had to work harder than we expected to to hold our delegation. And my dear friend Eleanor Roosevelt came to speak and uh, we you, those days you didn't have credentials where you had the um, you weren't as careful and your credentials were just a credential you didn't have the little seal which you, so the so you could look at it I mean we weren't doing any of that sort of stuff so Eleanor wrote we thought we were in very good shape but Eleanor Roosevelt decided that she, you know we knew she was going to speak and Eleanor Roosevelt. At that point, what you did when your group came in, like when we had parades then, and so your group got so many extra tickets. In other words, you cleared the balcony, and that tickets were then changed. If it was Lyndon Johnson's group, they got to come in, and then it was out, uh, then it was our group or whatever. And Eleanor Roosevelt was going to make just a speech, so it was a general audience. We thought a mixed audience, and we didn't realize that there was, uh, she got up and made a speech for Adlai Stevenson and stampeded the convention. And we thought, oh my God, all this work we're going to lose, possibly because we couldn't go for Stevenson the third time. But anyway, long story short, we got just enough votes to win. But prior to this, uh, once we knew we were the nominee, we had um, things that I had started about two or three days before that with Bobby Kennedy. Bobby was the boss. And I said, Bobby, if we win, why don't we take him out to the Coliseum for the speech? And Bobby looked at me and he said, you know the size of the Coliseum? And I said, sure I do. It's about 100,000. And I said, it would be great. Let's open this convention. People are dying to go to conventions. They don't know how you get credentials. They don't know how you get in. I started from the bottom and I knew what it meant. I said, let's open it up. You know, we don't have to re-convention, you know, uh, re-credential people. Let's let the public come. And Bobby said, 100,000 people. He says, you're out of your mind. I said, Bobby, it would be great. Nobody's done this but FDR, and he didn't do it for his inauguration, but he spoke at Soldier's Field outside. And I said, we would be the first to do it. 
And Bobby said, Roz, it's impossible. And I said, okay. But I said, could the discussion continue a little bit? <laughs> and he said, okay. But I said, you're wasting your time. So there was a great man named Leonard Wrench who was in charge of Cox Broadcasting, which was all across America. They, the Kennedys loved him. I found Leonard, and I said, Leonard, I got an idea to take him out to the Coliseum. And I said, would you help me? Do you believe that I've got something right? He says, Rod, the television people are going to hate you. All those people are set. They don't want to set their stuff outside. But he said, I'll help you. And he said, why don't we, and we decided, I said, why don't we take them to the floor, the Coliseum, and maybe we can cut the Coliseum in half. That's 50000 theoretically. We could use a, a peristyle with back uh, that part of the Coliseum, put that half of it, and we could use and not use obviously everything, everything around. And he says, "I said, could you help me with that?" He says, "I got people that are experts. We can make a, a you know draw a plan on a piece of paper." I said, "I got to take Kennedy, Bobby, something to prove that I could still do it. We could still do it." So back. He makes me a great plan, puts it on a beautiful piece of paper. You know the old saying: you put it, make it a little nicer, and, and maybe you look at it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In other words, it wasn't a, uh, just a sketch; it was a real drawing, and the seats were there, and the platform, and etc. was very good. And so we went in together and uh, talked to Bobby. And we said, "Bobby, this is just perfect." half, 50,000. And I said, if John Kennedy can't get 50,000 people, what are we nominating him for? You know, I mean, made all the arguments you could think that I could make. And Bobby said, I said, but Bobby, if we're going to do this, we have to notify television people. We're going to be outside. We have to we have to start getting people. We have two days to do this, about two, two and a half days to do this. And he said, yes, two and a half days to get 50,000 people in. I mean, he wasn't excited with it. But he said he always sat at the desk with his feet up in a cigar. And so he says, I said, Bobby, two hours we have to have a decision. And so he said, okay, I promise I'll give you a decision. He said, but, you know, it's really, I'm so nervous if it doesn't work. You know, and I'm responsible, you know, to my, to, to the campaign. So anyway, he called me back and he said, well, I don't know why, but I'm going to say yes. He says, it makes no sense. And he says, I'm taking a real chance. Called me in. Said, come come in, actually. And he said, you're young. And he says, you've been pushing this now for days. And he said, I want you to know, this. if you're wrong, this is the end of your political career. Just like that, he said it to me. And he says, if this doesn't work, he said, you're through in politics. Well, to say the least, I was a little petrified at that point. I went home and I said, Gene, we got to fill the Coliseum. <laughs> and Gene said, uh, wonderful, <laughs> we have to fill the Coliseum. And I said, but I did, we had a, we had a group called Women for Kennedy. 
and they were at all the events, and we had a slew of them. And so I pulled them all in immediately, and I said, call every woman's organization in the state of California from the top of the state to the bottom of the state. And I said, well, get the, I'll get a couple of labor leaders, and they will call every union in the state of California. And I said, I'll tell them, get a bus and put some food on the bus and come from San Diego, come from Sacramento, whole state. We've got to do this. And I'll tell you, I never went to bed from that moment that Bobby said yes. We called everything that we could possibly call all day, all night. You can come. You don't need a credential. You you will be allowed to come in. I don't, you know, nobody believed it. Anyway, till those buses started rolling in and Jean Wyman, I thought was going to die. Jean really got so nervous and I was a wreck. We fit not only 50,000, we had, I think it was 65,000. We put a show together with all the stars that we could get. We filled the Coliseum, and we had the first time you ever had a, 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 a an event like that with a president. And it was interesting, when Obama's people decided to do it, they said, we're the first person to ever do it, and did not get phone calls. And they said, didn't they come out in California in 60? And we tried to tell Obama, you're not first. We were first with it. But it was a smash. And the newspapers across America carried it. We had just slam, bang event. And it was beautifully done. His speech was great. And I remember, though, walking out way after it was over with Jeff Sunder, and I said, what have we done? We just denominated, what was he, 46, as I recall? We just denominated 46 Roman Catholic to be president of the United States. And I said, I sure hope we're right. (laughs) Now, there's one story that follows this. It's my favorite political story. Jeannie's heard it 105 times. My friends have heard it. All my friends have heard this political story. It is my favorite, almost my favorite of all stories. Because of this had been Adelaide Stevenson country, campaign's over. We got a whole group, you know, we're putting the campaign together. I said, let's see if we can do a fundraiser. Let's see if this is totally that we can't raise any money. And I said, let's try something. So I went to Janet Lee, who was married to Tony Curtis at that point. They were the darlings of Hollywood. And I said, Janet was very active. And I said, Janet, could we use your house for a fundraiser? She's up by um, the Pick Fair, famous place, and it's windy streets, terrible location. But, you know, I got a movie star's home. Maybe people will want to come and if we don't charge. I mean, in those days, I had to figure it out. I think I charged, but I can't remember. I can't find an invitation to this day. But I think I charged $99, so I kept it under 100 And I thought, I said, Janet, she says, well, how many people are you thinking? And I said, if we get 100 I'll really be excited. I said, it may take us days after the mailing. We'll do some phoning. And I said... They only have to walk through your house, look at the rooms, don't have to open them, go to the yard, we'll do everything in the yard, and I'll get Frank and some of the guys to see if we can put a show on in the back, we'll feed them, and we'll have a show, and maybe we can sell this thing. And I said, I want to prove to the press that we we can put on something and people will come, you know. So Janet says, sure, okay, I'll let you have the house. 
the fir- we we put it together. We get celebrities. Frank was willing to come, and it was some other people. And uh, but we used him as a lead. Uh, that Frank would be a it's host. Sinatra, right? Frank Sinatra, yeah. yeah. And uh, that he would be a host, and that he would perform. We said he would perform, which was more than just the host, you know, and he agreed to do that. And he would not have to really do much till about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We'd make it lunch, and we'd have a, you know, buffet. In other words, it was taken care of. So the first day of the mail that we possibly could have, over 100 came in. Second day, I'm up to three, four hundred. And now I'm getting a little concerned because I haven't told Janet this. <laughs> so it was about the third, maybe the third day. I'm up to five, six hundred. I'm in real trouble. So I went down to the Beverly Hills Hotel and got the parking garage. And we're going to have to do buses up. So that was solved. But I thought, I, I don't know how I'm going to tell Janet. So... Edna Mosk, Stanley Mosk was the Attorney General of the State of California, but she was a very well-known real estate person and one of my dearest friends. And I went to Janet and I said, I gotta find a house next door by in this block, or if I could get it right next door, we could use two houses and I could have them come in, go out, go there, and we could take care of maybe the Janet, even if it's 500 I'm stuck with or whatever but at least it's not a thousand people and I said I can't tell people I can't stop the mail coming I didn't have a thousand at that point but I said you can't politics say you can't come it's the first event I said I'm not going to say no to people so anyway I hadn't so we tried to find a person next door we found a person nobody knew him but I said find it I said in the Let's get on a phone. We'll call him cold. So we got on, and there was a man named Joe Van Runkle. All of, we ran him up, and he was a distributor of a of, uh, big distributor in soft drinks and alcohol, and he was well-known, but nobody that we knew knew him, kind of, except we looked him up. So we called him cold. I was on the phone. She was on another line with me, and we said, could we come talk to you? and introduced myself, and he said, oh, you're the city council lady, and I said, yeah, I'm the city council lady, but I have Edna Moss, the wife of the attorney general, and he said, well, I don't know you, do I? And I said, no, 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 you don't, but could we come see you? We have a problem, and maybe I've been directed to you, which was full of bull, and I said, "Uh, can we come talk to you? And he said, well, can you talk on the phone? And we said, I figured if I didn't see him, I didn't have a shot. So I went up, talked to him, met us, and I said, you know, and he said, I would like to use your house for this fundraiser for Kennedy. Explained it to him. He says, I'm a Republican. And I said, well, Mr. Van Runkle, I don't care if you're a Republican. I need your house desperately. And he said, well, this is crazy. And I said, well, maybe it is, but could you help us out? Would you do a favor? And so he said, well, I don't know. But he said, you know, I've never met Janet and Tony. And he said, I'd really like to meet him. Could you arrange that maybe I could meet him because her house is involved? You know, I could say I'm a neighbor and concerned about this and I've heard about it. And he said, anything you want to say. But so I called. Now I have to tell Janet the truth. 
And she wasn't very excited with the truth. And I said, Janet, we've got to get this house next door. And I said, it's the only thing to save you and everybody else. So she said, okay, I'll have them. Well, nobody could be charm more charming than Janet Lee when she wanted to. And she had Tony away, and she thought she better do this herself. They had a marvelous time. He called me back, and he said, Janet couldn't have been nicer. I thank Janet. And he says, okay, you can use my house. So now I'm halfway home, and the mail keeps coming. Oh, my gosh. But I have to tell Frank as well that we're going to have the two shows. <laughs> Little problem. <laughs> Little problem. It's Frank doesn't even get up till 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And as it was, I had him around, I said, about 2, you know. So now I have to explain it to him. And he said, are you kidding? And I said, well, Frank, it's a success. So he says, okay, I'll do two shows. But so what I decided I'd do is obviously take them in. They'd see Janet Yard, which was her house had to be seen, take them back out, bring them around, and we would feed them in that place, and then Frank would sing at this side, and then we'd just transfer. In other words, we didn't have to move people twice. We'd filled both houses. And we'd put on the food and the show, the food and the show. And we Frank would sing then later. You know, it worked. And I was really very pleased, except I was very concerned about them walking in back through her house again into him. There was a brick wall between his house and her house, the yard. And I said, if I could get that brick wall that I could have a walk through, I then send them through her yard, they've been there, they go directly to his yard, and it's so much smoother. Then we fill up hers, we not take them in and out. Now I have to ask Mr. Van Runkle, can I break your wall? <laughs> I go to Mr. Van Runkle and I said, told, told him how I thought that if the wall, I said, it's just so bad we have that wall between the two of you. You know, if there was a way to, you know, maybe put some stairs over the wall or something like that. People and I thought it doesn't work, but I'd have to have some tons of stairs and people going over and it made no sense. And he said, well, that doesn't work very well. And I said, well, i tell you what, if I could break your wall just enough to put the people to walk through, then i really make a success out of this thing that would be so great. He says, break my wall? I said, well, I don't know any other way to do it but break it so it's wide enough to get people through. And he said, well, it'll be, well, you're going to break my wall? I said, well, yes, I would. I said, I've got the Berklayers Union. I didn't have it, but I figured I'm going to get him if he says yes. I said, I got the Berklayers. They're the finest in, in the America. And he said, well, the wall has got different colors. I said, they'll, they'll make it the same color. I'll take it down one day, and I'll put it back the next day. I promise. He said, this is really insane. He said, how did I get involved with you women, and you especially? Make long story short, I got the wall broken, and I got the bricklayers to fix it, and we made it 
perfect. We made the right color. We did it everything, and he always we gave him great friend after that. But we had about a thousand people, and it was a huge success. And I have to tell you to tell Frank, and Frank's great line for the rest of his life with me was, there was literally no place for him in Janet's house to sing except on a diving board. Awesome. And, and Frank says, you're putting me on a diving board? That's all you think of me? And I said, Frank, it only works perfect because it's a perfect location. Everybody can see you. I don't have to build a stage. I don't have to build two stage. He's got kind of an area I can use next door that I don't have to have a stage. Don't have to do it twice on a diving board. So anyway, Frank... Everything worked. Frank did what he did. We had a marvelous crowd. We got great press, and we were off and running in the campaign. That's one of my favorite political stories. I'm sure you earned a reputation as a very <laughs> successful fundraiser after that one. <laughs> okay, so I think even though I hate skipping time, but we would probably be here for 20 hours if we did your whole life, and you've had uh, Pat was here on Saturday, and you've had a good oral history with the Bancroft, I'm going to skip to past the Bancroft oral history, um, So, and, and I really want to talk about the 1984 convention um, and your involvement in that. Um, so how did you end up becoming the chair of the convention in San Francisco? Well, again, <clears throat> this involves Nancy Pelosi and Diane Feinstein. Um, Nancy was... Um, we decided we make a first place we had to make a bid to get it. And Chuck Manette was the chairman of the party, a Californian. So we knew we had half of a chance because the chairman of the party is a Californian and we'd get Chuck to be in favor of it. And so you make uh, various cities comes in and makes pitches and what they can do and what the uh, local uh, uh, we have a, a, a thing that they have to fill out a form and how much they can raise and how much locally and legally and all that sort of stuff. In fact, Mr. Trump has got a problem with his his uh, night uh, involving how the money can come in from a city and how it's legal, etc. The laws have changed a little too. But anyway, <clears throat> so you make a pitch. Well, we figured we had a shot at the pitch and we got it. And Nancy then became Nancy Pelosi, who had been state chairman of the party by then and was very prominent, becoming very active in politics in California, but well-known, but uh, uh, just a lovely person that I wasn't close to, and I didn't know the mayor too well, but I knew the mayor would be happy to have it. And she, we got her support. We got the local. Nancy took care of a lot of the local people, what they could do, the businesses, etc. Diane helped, and so we got the pitch, and we made it to '84 in Moscone Center in San Francisco. And Chuck said I had talked to Chuck. Chuck had asked me to come to be a part of his. Uh, hierarchy when he ran the Democratic National Committee and I said my mother was alone and I said I can't leave and I said but you know I always wanted whoever have a convention I'd love to run it and Chuck remembered and called me and said Ross I got a convention for you once we got it do you want to still do it I said yes I do so I became chair of the convention, the operating and the CEO or whatever. We I had a bigger title than I think I was called the chairman 
in, uh, of the National Convention. Not the presiding chair, but the campaign, uh, the chair from the party. And <clears throat> so we had, um, you know, a lot of plans. Nancy became the chair of the uh, host committee. Diane is mayor, and they're all pitching in. Anything I want, basically, we go to Moscone. And it's fairly new, and uh, <laughs> we uh, begin to put it together. And a lot happened, and in fact, uh, Nancy knew just everybody, and so did Diane, obviously. Uh, and we, we, we came up with things that we wanted to do, and Nancy found us this funny old headquarters that was really Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> and... Uh, but it was close to Moscone, and she would headquarters above me, and Diane obviously was in the mayor's office, and we'd meet every week to talk about the plans of the convention. And um, things were going fairly smoothly, but I had a wonderful contractor who had done New York a couple of times, and he came in even to say to me, well, who do I have to see to pay off? And I said, we don't pay people. You know, he said, well, I don't have to pay the workers or, I, don't, I mean, the head of the unions or anything. This was the East versus the West. And, I mean, it was entirely different, you know. I mean, you didn't do that here. And Charlie Uribe was his name, and he couldn't believe it, but I had a great builder, and I wanted to do certain things. I wanted to do my own filming. It's the last time a convention has been done by the management. Now they hire it out. They spend millions on it. We did all my own filming. I did certain things I wanted to do. I did everything almost in the convention I wanted. But we had some problems in the sense that one, like Diane, we had to have the uh, uh, buses in front of the hall, for example. Some of the statistics that I didn't expect and I wanted to have I'm a fire uh, a fireworks nut and I wanted to go out from the convention the night of the convention and as they walked out have fireworks well I started with that for weeks and the fire department said you can't Ross because first place the people who are protesting there had been a lawsuit and it was established that they could have so many feet in front of the hall and so where we had to put him, because San Francisco a very small town in a way, and where we had to put him, he said, yeah, I get a spark and they'll hit a bus sitting out there and it'll blow up and you've got people standing so you can't do it. So this went on and on and on. And, uh, but we got, we did things. In fact, here's one thing that was done. The Levi Strauss people were up there. And this was made for us. You can see the back of the blue jeans. And this was the logo. We, we had a contest for the logo. And um, this was given to everybody. And we had for the uniforms made by Levi Strauss for the volunteers who were in the convention. We did things that, that uh, kind of have never been done since and very proud of some of the things we did. But we also um, had had other problems that, that occurred, Diane finally gave in to, said, you mean they're going to shoot while they're, pro you know, those cameras are going to shoot while they're protesting and they're going to show my convention hall? I said, yeah, Diane, I'm going to show your convention hall. And I said, I have to have that and I want extra security. And that meant we only had so much under the 
uh, that the Congress gave for security and these sort of things, and you, that meant the city had to pick it up. And we had to go across the bridge uh, to put, because we didn't have enough uh, hotels, and it turned out. So we had a, a, a lot of things that were, were going on that seemed to be um, kind of issues, you know, to put on a convention. And um, what happened was um, Nancy was raising money for it. And we decided, number one, we wanted a wine, the official wine for the convention. We could, you know, sell it. Number two, we wanted... Uh, Nancy and I didn't drink, so we wanted an official ice cream. <laughs> and so Nancy and I had ice cream, and every afternoon we'd wait to say deliver, you know, for our tasting till the afternoon. And so we would have, and Christine uh, Pelosi, who was her daughter, I made her my page, and it was her. She was in high school, and she's become quite a politician, by the way. And. Uh, we would, she would come down and she had this funny thing that she would ring, uh, that you, the instrument you played, and it was time for our ice cream every day. And uh, we had things like that, but in the convention hall, we had a concessionaire, and I had a big to-do about I wanted the people of San Francisco to be allowed to be concessionaires in the hall. First time ever done, I wanted minorities, I wanted to be... Uh, uh, open it up and he said we've never done that and that caused a problem but I won that battle finally and we had all kinds of different food and all kinds of different people doing things um, etc but Nance needed me for often to go with her to we had a master calendar to go with people so we could tell them about the convention so one day she comes down and she says the Russian embassy would like to have a lot of embassies in San Francisco. She said, Rosie, will you come with me to the Russian embassy? They would like to know about the convention. And Diane was big in the sense that she was very tuned into the embassies and sister cities and all that. And I thought, well, Diane will be pleased. It's, I'm not very excited about going to the Russian embassy. But if Nancy says it's important and they're really asking, I'll go. So Nance and I decide to go together, and we pull up, and there's a picket line in front of the Russian embassy. Democrats don't cross picket lines, and we're very close to labor. So we had to go around in the back. Huh. So we didn't go in the front so they wouldn't see us because we didn't want any pictures taken. So we come in, and we presume there will be a lot of people. Well, there was not a lot of people. It was us and the staff and a few, maybe two or three people who were very important leaders in San Francisco who were uh, of Russian background. So we go to lunch, and the lunch is the heaviest lunch I've ever seen in our whole my whole life. And... They want to know how we run a convention, and we explain all the things, and we're charming as we can be or as nice as we can be. And this is going on and on and on, and already I'm ready to leave. And so they say, oh, and now we will have, leave this, and we will go, Nancy loves telling the story. We will leave in this room, and we will now have uh, coffee and tea and sweets in another room. And they said, is that all right? And now I've had it by now. And I said, 
Nancy doesn't drink coffee, I don't drink toffee, and we don't like sweets and we have to leave. <laughs> so that was my introduction to the embassies in San Francisco that went along with it. And um, so anyway, Nancy always likes to tell that was, and she wasn't so sure she was gonna take me a lot the rest of them but we did leave I said enough's enough you know and we got in the car and she said Rossi you know, that was tough but that was one of the great stories out of that but the fireworks story was the best of all I was determined how do I get fireworks I gotta have them Diane says if I hear well I want fireworks once more she says I just I don't want to hear about it again anymore so I found out I gave up I figure I'm not going to win this battle. So I get a letter. There's some stories about it. I get a letter from somebody that knew somebody and said, I know somebody who can do inside fireworks inside the hall. And nobody had ever done anything like that. And I said, oh, why don't I wonder if I could do that? <laughs> so. You're, you have a name when you're the head of the convention, and my n name was Dodger, my security name. And the, we had sealed the hotel, we had sealed the office already off. We had to do it, I think it was two to three days before where the dogs come in, and we had a lot of governors and et cetera coming in. We had to seal the hall. We'd already sealed the hall basically, and so you really had to have credentials to come or you had to ask for somebody, etc. So this guy comes to the door and he's got fireworks in two, two uh, suitcases. <laughs> and they go, the guy says he's supposed to see Dodger Mrs. Wyman. And they look at the guy and they're gonna arrest him. They think he's gonna blow up the place. And so they, have fin they finally find me and I said, no, he's okay, let him in. And so they, you know, he was, had people on both sides of him until he got to me. And I, and I, um, he said, we're gonna have a test. So we had a test, fire, I had the fire chief there, and it worked, it worked beautiful. So now we have to get Diane's permission. And the one thing, though, that could have killed me, my rugs are down, my things are down, everything's put together, and I forgot if the smoke went up, we, we have sprinklers. And was I lucky that it smoke didn't go up? I could have ruined my whole convention hall because I didn't tell management of the convention to run the place. So anyway, he in Diane's office at 8 o'clock in the morning, I said, we, if we're going to do this, we have to really get to it because i got two days, like, again, something to do it. And so Diane calls me and says, Ross, I gave you extra policemen. I gave you what the problems were with the, uh, the protesters. She says, I've given you everything. Do you have to have this fireworks thing? She said, I can't find anybody, and the fire chief says he does never seen any place. He's, she says he has told me it worked, but she says he's never seen any place that has been done inside of a, of a building. And she says, I don't know if this makes any sense. And I always, I said, Diane, I got to know by noon today. It's eight o'clock in the morning. I have to know because we have to make preparations for this. 
And so I said, Diane, you know I want this more than anything in the world. And she, she said, I've given you everything you want. And I said, Diane, I have to have it. And I always tell the story. That's why she's been the bravest person in public life, because she let me have fireworks inside of her. So she calls me back and said, I don't know. She says, but okay, you can have fireworks. Now, the fire chief says to me, you have to announce that you're having them because of guns. People may shoot in a convention hall. And at the pop-pop of the things, the fire chief was concerned about that, we could have a panic. And you, a lot of people don't know the, the podium is like an elevator and I have a button and you can, so that somebody's shot, you just put the thing and you know, you drop them. So I said, well, you know, we'll drop them and we'll do if, if, if they, you know, nobody, we know it's not guns. And he says, but you have to announce it. There's no beauty if I now say we're gonna have fireworks. There is no, Nothing to that. Now, everybody, we're going to have fireworks. You want to have them as it just happens. And after the last speech of Mondale, the acceptance speech, then you send it up. And by the way, that was the only, that was the one we nominated, Geraldine. That was the first time ever. And the women were standing on chairs and screaming, et cetera, et cetera. But he said, you have to announce it. So anyway, what... What is when you have a fireworks show and there's music? What happens? What's played? Oh, like the William Tell Overture, yeah. Dot to the Twelve, Dot to the Da Da, Da So I call the, the our band and I say, "Can you play the William Tell Overture?" He said, "Are you kidding? We can't play the William Tell Overture. We we don't have any music for that, and we're a we're like a you know a a, a band that plays in." you know, for dancing and stuff, and, and a few, I made him get marches, you know, a few things. He says, we can't play that. And I said, get the music, we're gonna play it. He couldn't find the music in San Francisco. I had to get a special thing to find the music in LA and bring it up. And I decided that if I could play that music, that everybody would know what's coming. And I decided I ain't gonna announce it. Now, we did it, it came off, it worked, and the there's so much noise going on in the convention. The chief said, Roz, I'm so pleased you did exactly what I said, and it worked. I never announced it. I just played the music, and it worked. And I never, t I told the chief, the fire chief, we did it, and it was the first time it's ever been done, and I'd love my fireworks. I mean, there was other things, but there was too many stories that go with that. But we did nominate Walter Mondale, and we only carried one state. But you leave a convention, you hope you're ahead, and at least we left the convention all about five points ahead. But it was a terrible campaign. What can you say about the nomination of Geraldine Farrar? Because a lot of people see that as a really important moment. Well, it was an important one. It was the first woman who was ever. And, of course, we had that terrible thing where Mrs. Bush, you know, was so negative about Geraldine. And we <clears throat> you were supposed to vet these people. You know, and Mondale had a lot of choices of women that were considered. Diane was one that was considered, and we just he he picked Geraldine, and Geraldine turned out to be a wonderful candidate, but 
there were so many stories about Geraldine's family, her husband, etc. It was really tough. She was great, and then that terrible debate with where Mrs. Bush called her a name, and it was, it was downhill from there for then on. But the women in the convention hall was the most exciting thing that you had ever seen. As I said, they were standing on chairs. There were tears coming down women's eyes that this had finally happened. We had nominated somebody to be vice president of the United States who was a woman. And I was so pleased as I look back over part of my career that it happened with a woman. I was the first woman to ever run a national convention as well. And so it tied, you know, as part of my life. And it, I've been fighting for women ever since to be in office. And um, I was just very happy that it occurred. But you had to be in that room. You never saw anything so electrified as what happened with them. And, the, and as I say, you, you, the picture, looking out at it, was so sensational. And then, of course, they walked out, and then when Mondale made his speech and the fireworks went off, I felt we had a pretty good convention. And I bonded with two great people, Diane Feinstein and Nancy Pelosi. So how well did you know either of them before? I did not know. Nancy had been brought to me by one of my biggest supporters, a woman named Elizabeth Snyder, who was the first woman in America to ever head a party. She was a great mentor of mine. By the way, I went to her to say I'm going to run for office, and she said, well, I don't know about it. She said, well, it'll be a good experience for you. You won't win. But she said, you know, you want to run, Rosie, we'll help you. She was chairman of the party, and she had been women's chairman. We had divisions in those days, a women's division, which I fought my whole life in the party till we got rid of it. And she said, when I got elected, her line was the best. Oh, my God, she's elected. Now we have to make her good. <laughs> um so you were saying that, that Elizabeth oh, well, Snyder introduced you to... Well, introduced me to Nancy Pelosi. She brought me over to my house, and she said, Roz, I think you should meet this woman. She's very special. Met her, and she left the house, and I thought, that is really some woman. She had five kids in, in six years. I mean, that in itself speaks a lot. Yeah. And uh, she was... There was some spark in her. And then when she told me about her family background, her father had been mayor, and then he went to Congress, and she had all brothers, and she was the only sister, and uh, that she loved politics because of her family. She told me some family stories. I thought, she's really quite special. And I'll tell you, from the day I met Nancy Pelosi, I didn't know what was going to happen to her career, but many people in the story is, of course, Phil Burton was the congressman from San Francisco, a great leader in the party. And by the way, was uh, we always used to kid him. He was in love with Helen Douglas, he always said. <laughs> but uh, Phil became, uh, was ill, and his wife took his place, Sala Burton, and on her deathbed, basically, she said, Nancy, I hope you will run for the seat. And Nancy ran. 
And of course, there's some wonderful stories. One of her daughters, she she figured she could never do very much other than like a committee chairman or something like that till her children were at least in high school. And her youngest tells a story, or she tells a story, and I hope I get it correct. I'll get it almost correct anyway. She went to the youngest one and said, I'm considering running for Congress. And, you know, it will change maybe, you know, all the time I have to spend, et cetera, et cetera. And she, her daughter turned to me and said, great, mother, get a life. <laughs> and that was, that was the one who's a great documentarian now who does the great documents in sure. all of America. And she's quite a quite a girl and I must say she was sent down to me in her college years and so uh, I spent a little bit of time with uh, Alexander Pelosi and the, the Pelosi family is like family they're very special and Nancy one of the things that is so remarkable of this woman she she has raised the most money that you can ever imagine she never walks into somebody who she doesn't come out with a contribution. She is so marvelous, and then she talks issue, and she cares about issues. But she had a, the, the ability, as busy as she is, she talks to her children, and she talks to her grandchildren. And I'll never forget a few, uh, when they were littler, now they've kind of grown up the second time around, is she speaker? And I must say, the night she became, or the day she became speaker the first time, I had tears rolling down my eyes. I thought, this has finally happened. She becomes the most important woman in America, third in line to be president, and she is so equipped. And I must say, I'm very popular right now. I've been talking about Nancy Pelosi for years, and I go in somewhere, and somebody say, well, you were right about Pelosi. I'm very popular right now. <laughs> And so anyway, but uh, the um, she calls, and I remember one thing of uh, Halloween, I talked to her, and she would go to a, a city, and maybe had stuck in an airport, and she, I was, I never sleep, and so she could always call me late at night, and we talked often, but she had talked to every one of the kids and knew their costumes. I'll never get over that, as busy as that woman was. She had touch base, and she knew all about what they were wearing. And her family, I'm sure, you know, I mean, she obviously has had less time, but that family's important to her at the same time. And she has a husband who is so supportive. I mean, he will meet her any place in the country and try to be supportive to her. And I'll tell you, we are lucky today that we have Nancy Pelosi where she is, the first no Mr. Trump ever got, and I'll tell you, I am just proud to be say that she's a friend. I'm happy she's there. And, <laughs> and I must say that along with that, the, the bonding with Diane Feinstein has really, really been important in my life. Probably next to Helen Douglas, Diane has filled a role for me as Nancy has, but Diane even kind of more, because uh, 
we're we're kind of contemporary in age, although she's younger than I am. But I remember when she, uh, her daughter first got pregnant, and some people say, "Well, you're so close to Senator. What do you talk about?" And I said, "Well, sometimes we talk about our grandchildren. It's hard for you to believe she's when she first had a first grandchild. I had just had one, and and so I was." We would often talk about it, and I kidded her when she became chairman of the Intelligence Committee. I said, now you can't tell me anything. <laughs> but for 30, uh, well, for almost 30 years, I got her calendars for every day that she's been, was in office, and I've tried to help her in any way. I've been involved in every single one. But remember, this is the first woman to win in the state of California. And then we got Barbara Boxer, then we got two, and Diane was very helpful to Barbara in our first race because it looked like we were going to win. And um, But her legacy, when she leaves the Senate, is going to be one of the most remarkable legacies left by any senator who ever served. What she has done in California between... Um, water, which is so important. Three years, but Diane Feinstein never gives up, and she works it out. The first and only gun bill in 1994 in the Senate. The first one, and how did she get it? She worked with the, Ted Kennedy, and Joe Biden said she could never get it through. She's a freshman, and she says, I want, I, they said, forget it. And she wouldn't forget it. And she met every Republican to say, would you support it? And then she went over to the House and talked to Henry Hyde, who arch Republican, but she found out he had had a shooting in his district and he might support gun legislation, and he did. And she has uh, 5,000 acres of land in, in, in California for Joshua Tree and parks. When she leaves, her legacy is going to be one of the greatest that has ever served in the Senate. I predict it, and I know it to be true, and I'm glad she's my pal. Well, and I'm sure she's been very fortunate to have you along the way. Um, so what do you, do you remember when Diane told you that she wanted to run for Pete Wilson's seat in 1990, I must have been 91 or 92 when she declared. Yes, uh, I wanted her to, when I left the, the convention, I said, you're a hot item. <laughs> and she told a story that she was traveling in Europe and somebody came up to her about, said, I saw a lot about you in the convention, you know. And um, what happened I kept saying, do you want to run? I, I said, I'll, I'll take some mail, all this mail you've got, about what are you going to do in the future, etc. She was out of office then for a while, and the, the question was, when Sally Burton died, was Diane going to run for the House? And we had to, to wait to see, Nancy had to wait to see what Diane was going to do, because probably Diane would win if the two of them ran, and it would be better if Diane didn't run. And Diane then decided that she wouldn't run for the for the House, and she then was out of office for a little bit. And in the interim, I had said, you know, I'll take all these things and I'll have you meet. She hadn't been traveled down to Southern California. I mean, she was basically the mayor of San Francisco. But remember, the shooting 
How she became mayor was the shooting of, of the councilman, and she became mayor over guns, by the way, as well. It's why it's always had an effect on her. And she held that city together that could have just busted up as she took over from two shootings, the mayor and the councilman, Milk, who was well known in Moscone. But anyway, she didn't make up her mind, and dear my dear friend John uh, uh, John Vandekamp decided to run for Senate. And he asked me, would I help him? And his family had helped me. There were great people at Vandekamp People Bakery. And uh, I knew the family. And he asked me to help him. And I said, it looks like Diane can't decide what she's going to do, and I'll support John. So in the primary of, her, of the first race, I said, Diane, I... She called me and I said, my gosh, I've always given my word to John. I've never gone back on my word. But I said, I wanted you to do this. So anyway, in the primary, it was kind of funny. Uh, Nancy Pelosi's oldest daughter went to work, basically. She was fond of Diane to work in the campaign. And I, it was really funny. Even though I was for Tunney, they would call me all the time and say, you know, got any ideas for us? And I always told them, you know, what <laughs> I had any ideas. And on election night of the primaries, they called me and she said, Rosie, do I have you now? And she's had me ever since. That's wonderful. Um, 1992 was, like, you know, one of the, was the first dubbed year of the woman. Um, what do you think contributed to Diane's and Barbara's success in that in that 92 Senate era? Well, we weren't sure. <laughs> the polls were not always perfect for us as of, of the history of that period. But um, first place, both those women, well, Diane was elected, you know, for an expired term, so right. she she was already in and had to run again, right. which was a mess for us, I have to tell you. I mean, we just finished, and we we had the capacity to put a good campaign together. It makes a difference. And they were so sure that she didn't have a chance that we got people early on to support her that maybe been looking around and been active in politics or and then she had the capacity because she had been mayor to reach out and she had um, the good sense of to put together a fundraising we had a finance committee in that campaign most campaigns this day hardly ever have a finance committee and we had an active finance committee and we were able finally to raise some money that we could put some ads on. I mean, we could run a first-rate campaign. And we concentrated, again, on San Francisco, L.A., and I always kid her, I keep saying, Diane, all the votes are down here. <laughs> you know, San Francisco is small. But she spent a lot of time, she did, she ran, and then she had a... Well, you know, in the primary, she debated with John uh, Vandekamp, and everybody figured John would, uh, first place, Diane tried to get the party's endorsement. And, and she said that she was for the death penalty at that point. And I was standing by Nancy, and Nancy said, oh, that's the end of her campaign. And I said, you know, I don't think so. 
and the headline in the LA Times was uh, Diane Feinstein running for party leadership in the Senate had uh, said she was for the death penalty and it never hurt us, never hurt us. And uh, she, it showed the beginning of a woman who would take a stand and if she believed it didn't work and it was out of balance, you couldn't pay for it. You can't be for things because it sounds good and it makes for great press. But if you can't pay for it, and you, she never compromised a principle, and she never attacked a person in any of her elections where everybody's out attacking everybody else. She ran a positive campaign, and she, it, it caught, and we had women working. We had, was it 500 or 1,000 house parties? I mean, we ran a real campaign. And uh, we had a first time kind of that was ever done. And I mean, it was, I mean, we just was really what you do. It, it's, it was grassroots and yet it was sophisticated. <laughs> if you couldn't say it's grassroots and sophistication. And it was, um, you know, it was interesting. This, I haven't mentioned this very often, but you know, when I first ran, I was really popular. And then when I, got um, married uh, I wasn't so popular because the women at that point were jealous and they said their husbands would would read about me and they didn't like it and if you talk about an evolving in today's market look what the women are doing today it's like day and night Women who I thought would always be for me, but they thought, oh, she was this young, nice girl. She's now married. She's got a home. And people, you know, I went to a lot of people for money when I first ran. They said, why are you doing this? You should get married and have children. You know, you shouldn't be doing this. This is back in the 50s. <laughs> you know, we're in the, we're in the 90s, in 2019. And... Uh, Women have come alive in this part. It took a long time. We still haven't got the ERA through. We're still fighting for that. Mm -hmm. But the point is, and a lot of people will say to me, well, why did Hillary lose? What do you think? And I mean, I'm, no, I'm not any expert, just that I've been at it for 60 years, but there were a couple of things. Number one, one of the biggest things, and it's so tragic, you can have a, you can have German prime minister, you could have an Israeli prime minister or, or the head of a, of, a, of a country. And yet people in America do not think a woman could be the commander in chief of the armed forces. I mean, it's tragic. All these countries can have women, the Brits, and America can't, that we don't believe that a woman cannot be the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, she'd probably do a better job than any man had ever, because she, her family's gone, or she knows people in it, etc. And then I think the Bernie issue was very hurtful to uh, Hillary, uh, in the sense that I thought that when you're in a party, of course he's never been a registered Democrat, but once she was nominated, he shouldn't have run, he should have stopped. I mean, you support the person of, of the party, and I am so concerned 
right now, and I never do much praising of Ronald Reagan, but he did two things that I was really liked. That uh, he he put gave the first uh, people in America to become citizens uh, through that his uh, policy. Uh, yeah, amnesty, amnesty policy. And second thing he did, and this is what I wish somebody in our party would do, and I'm really trying to ask Diane if she would consider it, or the national chairman of the party who I'm going to see tonight, I'm going to suggest to him too. Ronald Reagan came up with what he called the 11th Amendment. And the 11th Amendment to the Constitution, like, was thou shalt not speak ill of a Republican. And right now, with what's going on with us, I would like our state, our national chairman, or a senior senator like Diane to throw this out. We we Democrats ought to honor the eleventh commandment, and the eleventh commandment is, "Thou shalt not speak ill of a Democrat, of yeah. another Democrat." Ronald Reagan talked about that all the time, and I thought it was one of the great things that Ronald Reagan said, not the, I said the Constitution, no, it was the commandment, the 11th commandment. And he's right, thou shalt not speak ill of another Democrat. We're going to have enough people fighting with okay. us, and we should not attack each other. And I'm so concerned about that, so concerned. And so I'm trying to get somebody, and it should be at some level, and I think the national chairman ought to try it at least and put it out, they'll never all sign it, but it would be nice if they would, but at least throw it out. And I'm really concerned, so a couple of things, as I say, it's so tragic to me that women who can do everything, and I mean, they can run a campaign, they can be the head of a corporation, they can, they can do so much, and yet the American public do not think they can be commander-in-chief of our armed forces, and it's a big issue. I would agree. Um, what do you remember about the night that Diane and Barbara both won their Senate seats in 92? Oh, it was the most beautiful night, one of the most beautiful nights I ever had in politics. And I was doing <laughs> Diane's... Uh, election night in San Francisco. We were at the Fairmont Hotel and um, having known some things to do, get flags and get beautiful backgrounds and etc. And I had it all going for us and Barbara's people were down the road in the same hotel. They said, Rosie, we got nothing. <laughs> and so we shared what some of the stuff we had, but what a night. And then when they were together, and the two of them on the stage, if you're in politics and you're a woman as I was and the things I was doing, I, I mean, it, it was like out of fiction. <laughs> I mean, this couldn't happen. It really couldn't happen. And I must say, of the Jewish faith, two women of the Jewish faith, no less, too. I mean, that was just, I mean, everybody got enough the terrible stuff. We have so much anti-Semitism going on in America today. But, you know, California elected two things that had never happened anywhere in the country. We were the first to ever have two women in, in office together. I mean, I was so proud of my state. I mean, we did, we did some stuff, and those women did it, and they embraced 
both of them. Barbara has had a great career too. I'm sorry Barbara's not there right now. She could really be helpful. And she was a big voice. She's on television a lot right now. And she's useful. She's very useful, very smart. And uh, it it was a night that I never dreamed I'd ever see in my life. So it was, what you say, what did you feel like? Every kind of emotion that could, you could bring up, I had that night. And oh, and then it was funny, our room just packed solid with people. And I'm terrible with anything electronics. I'm a typical 80, I'm gonna be 89 this year, who can't handle a telephone in my hand or any of this electronic stuff. And I had a walkie-talkie with me, and they were up in a room in the hotel and wouldn't come down. And I said, we can't breathe down here. Come down. And I had a guy walked with me, and he would hold it so I could talk. And I said, if you don't come down, we're winning. We're winning. What do you need? And Diane, they said, Diane wants to see more to make sure. And I said, I'm going to come up and pull you all out pretty soon. (laughs) We can't breathe down here. And so we had a wonderful campaign manager named Cam Kawada. He was just the greatest. He passed much too early. We didn't have him in the last race. And um, Cam says, Roz, I can't get her. I said, Cam, I'm telling you, I'm going to scream. We can't breathe down here. It's so hot and we've got, I mean, we're sardines. And then, oh, when she walked in, it was, I mean, it was the Star Spangled Banner and the America the Beautiful and, and, and everything you could imagine emotions in that room. It was very, very special. I've had some really special nights as an elected, uh, as in my political career. I've been very uh, honored for what I uh, have been asked to do and I think what I have done. And I've enjoyed this career. You've done a lot for the party and for the state and for the nation. We never even talked about arts. <laughs> I know, and I still have. Uh, I mean, I I don't know where, where we want to stop or how we're how we're doing. Yeah. What, what else do you want to cover? I mean, I I I've already skipped a lot of the stuff I could have covered, but I I mean I had a, mo- a few more questions about for you to sort of reflect on women in politics, given... But I've kind of thrown it out in, in between. Yes, you have. Um, I've hit it with let, a few other... Okay, things. let me see if there's a couple more. Um, Jeannie, anything? This is well, your... Why don't, why, yeah, why don't, why don't you just uh, sum up by saying, you know, your story about what you've cared about in your life, you know, your family, politics, the Dodgers, and and arts and culture. Well, I spent a lot of time on arts and culture. I know. We didn't even get to your arts, you know, your National Endowment for the Arts, and I know you We saved the, uh, that's a really interesting story. We saved the National Endowment to the Arts. We pulled the, uh, Ronald Reagan came into office and he had a kitchen cabinet and the kitchen cabinet uh, wanted to get rid of the National Endowment for the Arts and the Humanities. And I was on the National Council for the Arts at that point, the National Endowment. Um, and um, I 
wanted to be a part of seeing that that didn't happen. And so Ronald Reagan's people put forth uh, that to abandon it, just take it off. And we got some people who were close to them that said, well, at least why don't you put a committee together to see if it should be kept or not and make it so there would be an appointment at least from the Senate and the House and then cultural things, etc. And I got to be appointed through the Senate onto this committee. And what we did, we really pulled pulled a wool over their eyes. This was a really good one. And we got Chuck Heston as the chair. Chuck Heston had been a very close personal friend of mine, my husband. They were at Northwestern together. Gene was student body president of Northwestern his junior and senior year and were very close to Chuck Heston and Lydia. And Chuck Heston in his early career was a Democrat. In fact, he sat in my living room. We tried to talk to him about running as a Democrat. Of course, he changed when the, with the whole gun issue, et cetera, et cetera. But Chuck became chairman of this committee with um, Gray. Uh, she was the president of Chicago University, um, Hannah Gray. Hannah Gray. Hannah Gray was the co-chairman with Chuck. And we got some really good people appointed, and we got some people from, oh, like North Dakota and some parts of the country that we didn't think they cared really much about the arts, but they knew somebody, and somebody put them on it, you know, through friends of whatever. And we got Kitty Carlisle on it. And Kitty Carlisle had been really active and her hundred her husband of course was Moss Hart and the great composer, writer, etc. Kitty had been the chairman of New York Arts for years. And everybody and she was on that show, What's My Line? So she was kinda of well known, very well known, and lovely human being. And so Kitty was on the committee with us. And we met and the first thing we told this committee, we have to be unanimous. Whatever we do, we won't have any effect if we're not unanimous. Because we got people from, you know, um, I don't want to disparage anybody, but they were didn't have much art in North Dakota at that point, or Oklahoma, or wherever, you know, this whole mixture. We were really concerned about this. And so we kept stressing, you have to be unanimous, we have to be unanimous. And so we decided that if any, like if I made a motion, you know, I'm an active Democrat, etc., might not carry. But if Kitty made the motions, they loved Kitty. They were so happy to be this star they see, they'd seen on television, and Kitty was an institution to all this committee that were not those of us who were kind of from the big states and knew what we were going to do here. And so... We got it finally got it through that the National Endowment had such an important role in America. And uh, we got, in fact, we wrote it right in my dining room. Chuck was a beautiful writer and a beautiful speaker. And they didn't know that Chuck Heston liked the arts. And in fact, Chuck had been the chairman of the uh, American Film Institute 
in his career as well, which is a great institution that um, was active in America on uh, keeping film in uh, schools, etc., etc., and was one of our biggest grantees. But Chuck had been chairman of that, and he loved the arts. And Chuck was determined, and they didn't know it, that he was going to save the arts. Hmm. And so we had Hannah Gray, who was Ford and very prestigious president of Chicago University. And the two of the chairs were for the arts and the humanities, but we were only dealing with the art. So we, Chuck's speech, we wrote that he went to Congress, and I was one of the speakers as well. And I remember what I said. I said, you know, art, and if, if children in schools, it's so important to keep arts in the school. And in Los Angeles, we'd have taken them out down here. And I was really upset. And one of the things with all the committees and arts that I've served on was to get arts back in the schools. But I could prove that if you could get kids interested in arts, it's discipline. And that if they cared and they had to come in the weekends, if they were part of an orchestra or if they were part of something else, and we could prove that 90% of one group I've worked with here, 90% of those kids, we give them, buy them an instrument because they're in the city, the part of the city where they can't afford a, you know, to buy a new instrument. We give them a new instrument. They're in, in the lower economic part of the city. And it's, a, it's an orchestra that works with Dudamil. Mm -hmm. our L.A. Philharmonic, and these kids come on weekends, and we give them the instruments when they're probably about the fourth or fifth grade, and they come on weekends, and if you don't come and you don't show up, you're out. And so we can prove that 90% of those kids go on to, to college or junior college or whatever. Anyway, I, I remember my speech. I said, wouldn't it, said so much legislation that you are all for, one year, another Congress had come in and get rid of that legislation. But if you supported a symphony, or you supported a, a theatrical piece, and at those days the stages were really doing all our social work, and if you see a great play or a great book, and the endowment had been part of it, you could be proud of that. And that will last well beyond maybe your legislation. That was my pitch. And Chuck made a speech, the importance of arts across America and what it meant. And he had done a lot of theater work. What came off our stages and talked to the American people through our stages. He made one of the most brilliant speeches anybody could make for the keeping the arts, and we won it unanimously. And that was really a nice part of my life, too, to save the National Endowment for the Arts. And I was really proud of that. And I really loved Chuck for that, and we decided we would not talk politics ever. <laughs> we would just talk about the arts <laughs> together. Sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Um, okay, I have two questions, and then I'll be done. Um, so... What advice would you give to a young woman who asked you if she wanted to run for office today? What kind of advice would you give her? One, she's 
couple of things. One, I might say, I never said this, but I often thought if you're elected, this is not running, but if you're elected, you should have a good sense of humor (laughs) because sometimes it's so bad. If you can figure out a way to kind of roll with it and find something maybe humorous and deal with it a little bit. But if somebody wants to run, the first thing they have to be able to, are you willing to lose? Can you handle a campaign for whatever kind of a campaign it is, and can you lose? Because it might happen. That's number one. Number two, you should decide that if you're going to run, have you made any inroads in organizations, any organization, a church organization, your mother and father may belong to a, a temple or a church, or uh, have you joined anything where you have any kind of following at all? Remember when I ran, going back to it, I was representing youth on a committee of activists in the city. And even though it was grassroots, beyond grassroots, <laughs> but I still had some base to start from. And if you're thinking about it, you should prepare a little bit. You know, are are you willing to, do you know how to raise money? And will you take advice? And can you surround yourself with people who you can bring in? That's number two. You've got enough friends that you can have at least a circle that you can lean on or that know something about maybe running. You can't do it alone. You just can't. And so therefore, anybody who wants to run, I often say, have you belonged to anything? Anything that you can go to any group, um, a a book club, belong to a book club, the ladies in the book club. You know, in other words, you need something that to help you to start. I had the Young Democrats. I had some of the party, even though it was really my campaign and all the Young Democrats, et cetera, et cetera. It's awfully hard to start from nothing. And um, Or did you join something where you talked about issues? Did you join the Library Association? Are you willing to have joined something? Or will you join if you think you want to run? In other words, it's very hard if you're asking for advice from me what to do. That's kind of what I would say. But as I say, going back, if you've worked very hard and you're going to lose, you have to be able to lose. That's the first thing, in my opinion, if you're going to run for office, you've got to be able to be possibly lose. And can you take it? All right, last question. Um, I mean, I could sit here and ask you questions for two days, but um, having been involved in politics in, uh, for 60-plus years, um, how, do you, how do you see things as being different for women in politics today than when you first got involved? Well, today is the worst. I mean, because not for women, and you're asking about women, but first place, I have never seen such hate in America. That's the first thing that affects me right now. I can't believe it. I really cannot believe it. And I really find, and I guess we 
I just feel, do I only talk to people I know or who believe like I believe? And overall, and then I go to women, but um, in America right now, it is so scary to me. I mean, to, to run and try to face what this division in America the hate is so deep. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. And I mean, I'm a partisan, I'm a partisan Democrat, but I can't understand. I mean, I've worked with Republicans my whole life to get things through. I mean, I don't even understand the Congress of the United States. This, the Republican Party, we'd have Nixon still as president of the United States if it hadn't been for the Republicans. They went to him. It was Goldwater and that group and said, Mr. Nixon, this cannot continue. It was the Republican Party. And I can't understand the issues are as deep and as serious. And I mean, the divide in America is really tough. And I do think, though, a couple of things have happened recently that at least gives me some hope. <laughs> and the hope has come, I must say, out of tragedy. The shooting in Parkland. Those kids to organize and to do it year after year. And secondly, the women's marches. They should not be discounted. They organized. And the old saying is, you know, in a campaign in the old days, we don't stuff envelopes anymore. It's kind of sad because it was a camaraderie. At least you had you get the pizza in or the donuts <laughs> or whatever. But the fact that women can organize, women can do the work. And they do do the work usually. Sometimes the grunt work, as we say, in a campaign years past. But I'll have to tell you, the marches were one of the great things that put women in the forefront. And I don't think today you can put women down anymore, except, as I have said, there's still major issues that men... And women. Women will tell you, well, a woman can't be commander-in-chief. This drives me nuts, I have to say. Just drives me insane. But you're not going to put women away again behind the curtain of a campaign. They're not going to be just the stuffers of envelopes anymore. And I think the fact that we've had um, issues like over the years, the... The thing that's uh, um, the sports uh, world for women, uh, uh, the 10, what's it called? Title IX. Title IX has come. In other words, there are some things that women have today that they didn't have when I started, for sure. Mm -hmm. And they have evolved. But again, why can we not get the ERA through? For women, I mean, I can go both sides, but I think the side I can at least have hope in is that women have been able to take the heat if they ran, 
They have, we've had some really good candidates. The fact that you've got a Nancy Pelosi who is there standing up, and I'll tell you, the only person that that man has had a no to is hmm. President of the United States, and that's a woman. And the point is that if women will take their roles and they become the president of the church that they joined, they're not going to sit and, and do the bake sales. Hmm. They're going to be the president of the church now. And that can happen in more organizations. They are not going to just be pushed around or, well, you know, you can, you can watch the kids while we have services or something like that. I'm just using a church in the mm -hmm. same thing. And I think that we have evolved, but not enough. It's not clear to me that it just because we have had some good luck recently in the last primary, now we got to go through a 2020, uh, which I won't be here to talk to you about, <laughs> but I think women's roles are really key and we finally have awakened to it's not just the Congress. Women have become school boards. Um, the local planning commission, the arts commission, the running schools, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, we have more women who will not sit back any longer in small roles to the world, but the school board is a big role locally. And you've got to see that women continue now where they're beginning to take real leadership in the lesser offices. That gives me great hope. And as long as women will put themselves forward and you stand up and you say what you believe and you say, I'm, I'm, it's my turn to be president of this organization and I'm ready. And if we can get more women on boards, uh, we have a motion in the California legislature, very progressive, to say that women should be on boards. There should be at least one woman on the boards in California. That's a huge step. Yeah. That's huge, women to be on a board. I mean, I think of me, I'm on five boards, nonprofit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I haven't taken a, any dime for all the years, but you go on boards to get paid yeah. today. You don't have to be on nonprofit boards. You can be on boards, and the fact that California leads, we are really a progressive state, and we have we have had very good leadership in California in the last few years. Jerry Brown has been a great governor, two great senators, and uh, we're lucky in California compared to a lot of rest of nations, mm -hmm. you know, and we have had some very progressive things done here, but women have got to stand up there and I think that and I say we started with the parades yeah. nobody believed that first parade and I think that set us on our way well, thank you so much for taking this time a lot of time out of your day to talk to me I learned a lot well I don't know what we learned but we, 